When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry? Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. All right. Hello, hello, everyone. Very special episode here today. We're going to be going through the book, Nutrition and Physical Degeneration by Weston A. Price. Very important book, one of the most important books ever written, in my opinion. This is one of the Bibles in the health industry. This is like the Old Testament of nutrition. And normally here on these deep dives, I don't try and summarize a book for you, but in this case, it's pretty easy to summarize, actually. So Weston Price was a dentist. And back in the 1920s and 1930s, he went all over the world looking for primitive populations that did not have tooth decay, cavities. And he was able to find many populations that were not in contact with modern foods. Foods of commerce is what he called them. Processed foods, basically. Processed flour, processed sugar, canned foods, and other denatured foods. So first of all, he documented these people, he documented their excellent teeth, and he also witnessed their excellent health at the same time. He connected dental health to health in general, and he found that the populations who were living the way they had always lived, on their native foods, they had good teeth, they had very low or completely absent rates of cavities, they had excellent skeletal structures, and excellent health in general. And he found and documented that every single population that had recently come into contact with foods of commerce had an immediate degeneration of their health, hence the title, Nutrition and Physical Degeneration. He saw cavities show up immediately and health problems show up immediately. And in the second generation, of course, it was even worse. And one of the reasons this book is so important is because it will never be replicated. 
there are still some populations out there that are not contacted, but as far as I know, all of the populations that he documented here, all of them now consume foods of commerce. So we're never going to find this huge array of perfectly healthy people. There's lots of great pictures in this book, and it's really worth checking these pictures out. You can Google Nutrition and Physical Degeneration Weston Price, and you should see many of these pictures come up. There's such a startling difference between the people on their native foods and people eating the foods of commerce. And I'm holding the sixth edition here in my hands. But the first edition was published back in 1939, and that was towards the end of Weston Price's life. He died in 1948, 77 years old. And in his time, we didn't even have a lot of the nutrients figured out. For example, he goes on about what he called Activator X. Well, most of us are pretty sure he's talking about vitamin K now, but vitamin K hadn't been discovered yet. So he put together a lot of pieces before science and chemistry had really caught up with it. And it is my opinion that anybody in the health business at all should own a copy of Nutrition and Physical Degeneration. I was very fortunate to just happen to find this at a thrift shop right around the time when I first started in this business, almost 10 years ago. Read it twice, and then I just read it again recently. So today we're going to go through all the points that I saved when I was reading this. All the little dog ears that I made on the pages. And there's quite a few of them here, so I'm not going to waste too much time, but I am going to tell you that you can find everything that I do on my website, noticebooks.org. Notice is spelled not us, so that's notusbooks.org. You can find hundreds more book reviews. Most of them are on health. You can find the books that I've written and helped publish. And of course, most of those are about health as well. You can also find the free versions of my books if you go to the audiobook section on my website. And I should mention that this podcast is not guaranteed to stay up on podcast land here, wherever you're listening. The original version of this podcast, Notice and Friends, it was taken down by Spotify earlier this year, 2023. We have relaunched here with the same name, but none of these platforms support health information, if you didn't know. This is not a conspiracy. All of the major tech companies are heavily invested in mainstream medicine. This is why you see misinformation flags on posts that are talking about vitamins and minerals and herbs and stuff. All the way up to the biggest companies like the Alphabet Corporation, which of course owns Google and owns YouTube, down to the smaller companies like Spotify. And I'm sure even the company that I'm currently publishing on called Acast, I'm sure they're also invested in pharmaceutical companies, in medical diagnostics, all kinds of things. And so they're basically invested in the status quo. This is why this is so controversial. And I'm saying this because I'm pretty sure we're violating their terms and conditions. I was reading through it the other day trying to get ad monetization, which I also don't think is going to happen. All of these companies hate natural health information. They do not want you to have natural health information. I know I sound like a conspiracy theorist here. Well, you spend a little bit of time in this business, you realize how difficult it is, how uphill you have to climb 
to get health information out there because every single one of these apps, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, podcast, none of them are pro-health. They're all pro-status quo, pro-pharmaceutical, pro-mainstream medicine. YouTube finally came out and fully admitted it, that it is going to actively suppress health information. And our health account on YouTube was permanently demonetized. We've had all kinds of videos taken down after that. This is recent. We got demonetized before we had ever had a video taken down. Plenty of them have been demonetized even before they just cut our channel for monetization. And I'm saying all this because if you follow this podcast and you try and find it one day, it is likely we will get taken down again one day. I hope not, but I'm preparing you for it. So on my website, notusbooks.org, I've created an archive. It's free. You can view any of the episodes there. There's even some episodes that I haven't posted here to podcast, and I probably won't. So there's exclusive episodes there. No ads, and you can download them for free. And there's a special treat at the end of those episodes, the ones on the archive. And finally, before I start, just mentioning, if you didn't know, I'm in the health business. For a living, I give health protocols and sell supplements. If you have a health problem or someone you know and you want my advice, all you've got to do is reach out to me, whether on Instagram, where we're most active. And of course, you can find those links, my Instagram, YouTube, all this stuff. You can find it on notusbooks.org. Or you can reach out on email which should be in the description of this podcast and, once again, in the channels section of my website. If you reach out, we give you a questionnaire. You fill out the questionnaire, and we give you our best advice to follow. It's up to you whether you take it or not. No obligation. You don't have to pay for it. But I will make money on the supplements if you buy them. But you get the food information for free and whatever else is relevant to you. And with that out of the way, let's dive right in. So here we're in the prologue, and it says, Price analyzed the primitive diets and found that all contained at least four times the quantity of minerals and water-soluble vitamins of the American diet of his day. Remember, this is like 100 years ago. So however many nutrients were in the food in his day, I promise it's a lot worse these days. Even though we fortify foods, you hear that word, we fortify foods, Well, what do we fortify? We fortify highly processed foods. So that means basically nothing. There's practically no value to the American diet in general. And if you're eating real foods, they're not fortified. They're grown in nutrient-depleted soils. If you want to know more about my explanation of why there isn't enough minerals in our food supply, I recommend an episode I just posted. It's called The Calcium Factor Deep Dive. It's all about calcium. And in the last 20 minutes of that podcast, I go over the reasons why there is more nutrients in primitive diets and the blue zones. People who live a long time, they don't get their nutrients just from food alone. And they eat all kinds of different diets, so the food is not the common factor. One of their common factors is that they have lots of nutrients in their food. But again, it's not the type of food that matters. It's how they do it. And returning to the text... Even more startling was his discovery that these diets contained at least 10 times the amount of fat-soluble vitamins found in animal fats, including vitamin A, D, and the Price Factor, or Activator X, discovered by Dr. Price. 
So yep, there are water and fat-soluble nutrients. Both are important in their own way. But these primitive people on analyzing their food had at least four times the water-soluble nutrients and at least ten times the fat-soluble nutrients. Very important thing to note. Flipping forward here to page one on the introduction. And I saved one point here on this first page, but I'm just going to read you it from the start. This text provides a new approach to some problems of modern degeneration. Instead of the customary procedure of analyzing the expressions of degeneration, a search has been made for groups to be used as controls who are largely free from these affections. This is a very important point. A lot of the problem that we have with modern human research is that they lack controls. So they get like two groups of people. They say, okay, this one eats meat and this one doesn't. Or this one drinks soda and this one doesn't. First of all, there's a lot more factors than what they're looking at. Second of all, they don't have a control group. They don't have a group of humans who's perfectly healthy to begin with. We have this in animals. We have lab rats that are all given standardized diets and other animals, etc. Humans don't have a control group. So he was looking for a control group here. Groups of people who did not have dental cavities. So he could compare that to what's going on in America. And returning to text... After spending several years approaching this problem by both clinical and laboratory research methods, I interpreted the accumulating evidence as strongly indicating the absence of some essential factors from our modern program, rather than the presence of injurious factors. Okay, so he's saying that he thinks it was deficiency, not like a poison or something, right? Why is the reason America is so unhealthy? Is it because of all the chemicals and stuff? Well, that might have a factor, but he determined it was because things were missing from the diet. And so this immediately indicated the need for obtaining controls. So now he talks about, you know, where he went. He went all over the world looking for the controls. And jumping ahead a few pages, here he's talking about the decline of modern civilization. He's talking about criminality and, and people who are antisocial. And here the point that I saved is, most repeated offenders are far from robust. They are frail, sickly, and infirm. So regularly is chronic moral disorder associated with chronic physical disorder that many have contended that crime is a disease, or at least a symptom of disease, needing the doctor more than the magistrate. Physic rather than the whip. So he's saying these people are delinquents because of their physical constitution. So the next point I saved was when he was visiting his first group here in the Swiss mountains. And he's saying he stands in profound admiration before the stalwart physical development and high moral character of these sturdy mountaineers. Impressed by the superior types of manhood, womanhood, and childhood that nature has been able to produce from the suitable diet and a suitable environment. And here actually is our first encounter with a contradiction in modern diets, even something that we talk about a lot. Because these people in the Swiss mountains, they did eat cereals. They did eat the grains that we're against, many of these populations. They eat wheat, barley, rye, and oats. So what's up? Well, first of all, they're not processed, pulverized, denatured. Second of all, they're typically fermented. Now, he didn't exactly write this in, but I'm telling you. When these primitive populations would cut their grain crops, they'd let them sit in the field for a couple of days, two, three days. 
that alone starts them to ferment and it starts to increase their enzymes. You need enzymes to digest things, right? Like lactose is a sugar. You need lactase, the enzyme, to digest that. So our modern stuff is all stripped out of basically everything. Modern flour, no matter what it is. But these people didn't pulverize them, and they let them start to ferment first. And many of them actually fermented them in order to eat them. They would make oat cakes and stuff that were basically fermented foods. So he didn't find tooth decay here, not very much. And here the point that I saved... Again and again, we had the experience of examining a young man or a young woman and finding that at some period of his life, tooth decay had been rampant and had suddenly ceased. But during the stress, some teeth had been lost. When we asked such people whether they had gone out of the mountain and at what age, they generally replied that at 18 or 20 years of age, they had gone to this or that city and had stayed a year or two. They stated that they had never had a decayed tooth before they went or after they returned but that they had lost some teeth in the short period away from home. What do you know? They stopped eating their native foods, went to the city, started getting teeth decay. And he goes into some detail about some of these different mountain populations, some of them that were closer to trading posts and foods of commerce, and inevitably, they had more tooth decay and health problems in general. And the next point I saved, we're out of the Swiss mountains now. Now we're in the Gaelic communities in the islands, the Outer Hebrides. These are in the north of Scotland. Very rough place. Can't grow much grain there. Can't have many cattle or anything like that. Live primarily from the sea. And I guess this is a good place to throw this in here. So from Dr. Price's studies here, I can really only see two categories of long-lived people. Those that subsist on dairy and those that subsist on seafood. And I know that can sound weird. I was talking with a friend of mine recently, last week, and she's a vegan. And she was shocked by that statement. So what, do, what do you mean there's long-lived people who live off of dairy? I've never heard this before. Well, there's hardly any primitive population that lives on muscle meat. Right? We call muscle, we call that meat. A lot of these populations, when they do consume an animal, first of all, they prioritize the organs, the connective tissue, the stomach lining, the intestine, the eyes, the brain, they eat everything they can. But they definitely don't prioritize the muscle. If anything, some of them threw the muscle to the dogs. Right? Think about the nice steaks we eat. Those would be thrown to the dogs. The humans would be prioritizing the organs, the eggs, and the milk. Non-pasteurized, non-homogenized milk and cheeses and butters. And there's quite a lot to say on dairy. I'm planning to do a couple of episodes on dairy, actually. The good and the bad. And we humans do lose the ability to process milk. Especially non-whites. I know that's a weird thing, but... I think it's the Danes that have the least amount of lactose intolerance. But then Africans and Asians and basically any non-whites, they have much higher rates of lactose intolerance. Because we stop producing lactase, the enzyme... to digest lactose, we stop producing that later in life because we're not really supposed to be consuming milk. It's a, kind of a weird thing. But I just said, many of these super healthy, long-lived populations are dairy-based cultures. And if you think about it, if you've got a flock of cattle or goats or ox or whatever, 
obviously you want to keep them alive and healthy so that you can get that milk all the time. If you slaughter them for the meat, you don't have the animal anymore. And by the way, lactose is degraded largely when you make cheese or yogurt. And butter, actually, in my experience in the health business, is the least problematic type of dairy. A lot of people can't handle dairy, especially the pasteurized, homogenized garbage in our grocery stores. To me, it's not worth a single penny, that stuff. And it can cause many problems. It can cause digestive problems. Many people agree that it is the most common allergen, dairy. But that's milk, really. Milk is the worst offender. Cheese and yogurt is better because there's less lactose in it and some other reasons as well. And butter doesn't have much of the protein in it. So a lot of the irritation people can get is from the proteins. And there's tons of people out there. I've dealt with many of them. They can't handle milk, they can't handle cheese, they can't handle yogurt, but they can handle butter just fine. And me in my personal life, I've backed away from dairy big time, but not butter. I still consume a lot of butter. We say a stick of butter a day keeps the doctor away. So here's the point that I save with these Gaelics, is they're talking about the smoked thatch. Okay, So they have houses, huts, and they have a fire inside the hut. And there's thatch on the roof. So thatch is basically an accumulation of dead plant matter. So they use that stuff to make the roofs. And the interesting point here is that they would purposely smoke that thatch. And then they would put that thatch with their oats and their oat fields. And even though health officials came in and tried to blame the smoking thatch for tuberculosis, and they insisted that the old procedure be entirely discontinued, and the government came in and, and gave them money and help in building new and modern homes. But the experienced natives contended that the oat crop would not mature in that severe climate without being fertilized with the smoke thatch. Apparently, it was making it a better fertilizer. And so these Gaelics were willing to move into the new house, but they were not willing to give up the smoking of the oat straw used for the thatch to prepare it for fertilizing the ground. And Price here, he, he brought some of that back to his lab and, and he grew some oats with it. And he shows a picture here where the one where he used the smoked thatch, it obviously grew the best. And here we are. The chemical analysis of the thatch showed that it contained a quantity of fixed nitrogen and other chemicals resulting from the peat smoke circulating through the thatch. So, you know, we use nitrogen as the basis of our modern fertilizers. Nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium, NPK, that's our modern fertilizer. So they were adding nitrogen basically to this thatch by smoking it. And these people, they ate a bunch of fish as well. This is a seafood-based culture. Even though they had oat cakes here, remember, they would have been partially fermented at least and increased enzymes. They're not processed. They're not pulverized. They're not superheated or anything that would mess them up. And of course, they'd have fish organs. They'd have eggs. And this is something that will come up. I probably saved it. But many of these cultures specifically went way out of their way to get fish eggs for women who were pregnant or were about to become partnered up with their man. They would give them fish eggs as a fertility food. And of course, when we eat fish, we take the liver out. What nonsense. You buy a filet. It doesn't even have the fish head with the brain and the eyes. And this might sound gross to some people who are listening, but 
All these organs concentrate different nutrients. The liver and the eyes concentrate vitamin A, the adrenal glands concentrate vitamin C, and so on. Right? The brain of an animal has all the stuff that your brain needs. And they figured all these things out. They did not prioritize the filet. And the next point I saved here was in the next chapter. We're in Canada now with the natives. And here we're in an Indian reservation. This is when they still called natives Indians. This is not far from where I grew up. Brantford, Ontario. It's where the reservation is. They live on very fertile land there in close proximity to a modern city, Canadian city. Each head of the family gets a tract of land. And they usually have an income sufficient to permit him to have an automobile. They're able to buy not only necessities and comforts according to the modern standards of the white man, but also many of the luxuries as well. The government provides a well-administered hospital and staff. Good time to jump in and point out that all the longest lived populations, including all of the populations that Weston Price found that were thriving in their natural environment, none of them had doctors. None of them had dentists. None of them had specialists, surgeons, none of this stuff. We would blame doctors for a big part of the modern problem, but nonetheless, here on this reservation, they were provided with doctors in a hospital. And Dr. Davis here was the director at the time. And the principal services requested at the hospital in 1933 related to the problems of maternity, so pregnancy and childbirth. He stated that in his period of contact, he had seen three generations of mothers. The grandmothers of the present generation would take a shawl and either alone or accompanied by one member of their family, retire to the bush and give birth to the baby and return with it to the cabin. A problem of little difficulty or concern, it seemed. So these women, the grandmothers of the current generation there, they would just go off into the bush and give birth and come on back. No problem. No big deal. He stated that today, the young members of this last generation are brought to his hospital sometimes after they had been in labor for days. Not just a trek out to the bush, for days. Of course, this is very common now. Childbirth is well known as this arduous, painful process that can take many days and they might have to artificially induce labor or even go in for a C-section because it's just not happening natural. Well, that's not how it's supposed to go. They are entirely different from their grandmothers or even mothers in their capacity and efficiency in the matter of reproduction. He stated that that very morning he had had two cases in which surgical interference was necessary in order to make birth possible. And by the way, this was me. I was born with birth defects. A C-section saved my life and probably saved my mother's life as well because I was tangled up in a ball with my hips dislocated and my legs wrapped around my head which is a raging nutrient deficiency, especially in the calcium category, which is why taking these nutrients fixed me later on in life. It wasn't just the dislocated hips that was my problem. I was living with childhood arthritis my whole childhood. Twitching, tics, they would call it Tourette's. Basically stiff man syndrome. It was fixed super quick in less than a week with the proper nutrients. But obviously I was deficient at birth, and yeah, my birth was incredibly difficult, and definitely would have killed me if it wasn't for surgical intervention. It's not how it's supposed to be. And I'm just reading you the points that I saved here, but all of these populations, he's showing that the ones who were still living the native way, they had excellent teeth, excellent skeletons, excellent health, excellent resolution, mental health. 
And the next point that I saved, we're in Melanesia now, so we're in the Pacific Ocean. And here he's talking about missionaries trying to get the natives to wear clothes because they would just basically walk around naked all the time. This is in the tropical sun. And in several islands, regulatory measures had been adopted requiring the covering of the body. This regulation had greatly reduced the primitive practice of coating the surface of the body with coconut oil, which had the effect of absorbing the ultraviolet rays, thus preventing injury from the tropical sun. So people ask about this. I think that's why I saved it. What can I use for natural sunscreen? Well, this is one method. The Melanesians, apparently, they did this. They coated themselves with oil. Some places in Africa and South America would cover themselves in mud. Some of them would even pee in the dirt to create mud, because we're talking about desert. Pee in the dirt to create mud and then smear that mud on themselves, or especially on their children. And that not only had the effect of blocking the sun, of course, but it also blocked the bugs. And obviously us modern people aren't really going to want to cover ourselves in mud, but... It's much healthier than modern sunscreens. We would never, ever recommend a sunscreen. By the way, if anything, we recommend a sunblock, zinc oxide. But we really just recommend getting as much exposure as you can before burning, without burning. Us modern people, we want to go into the beach and play volleyball in the sun all day, even though we've spent all winter in an office or something, so our skin is pale and very prone to burning. You want to build that up over time as long as you can take without burning, then get out of the sun. I've also lived in the tropics myself, by the way. People wear big hats in the tropics. They stay in the shade as much as possible. They do most of their work in the morning and the evening. A lot of the times they'll be taking a siesta during the middle of the day, the hottest part of the day, and they're not in the sun. We're the ones that go out sunbathing. They get enough sun, but they also avoid it. So we want to use this magic sunscreen stuff so we could stay out in the sun as forever without getting harmed. Well, it's just really not the best way to do it. These people would use oil. And actually, the coating of the oil enabled them to shed the rain, which was frequently torrential. And so they started to make these natives wear clothes, and now those garments would get wet. You're saying here these wet garments became a serious menace to the comfort and the health of the wearers. Yeah, it's not healthy to wear wet clothes all the time. So they were walking around naked, covered in coconut oil before, and the rain would just beat off of them, and the sun wouldn't harm them that much. But yeah, now they got to wear wet clothes. Again, that's not good. That's an easy way to get sick and promote mold and fungus growth. Silly missionaries trying to do God's work, telling all these primitive people to stop doing it God's way. All right, I'm not religious, but... Everything we need to thrive is here on this earth. We don't need anything man-made in order to thrive. Even in the category of medicines, this world is full of powerful plant medicines that humans have figured out on every continent. But when we do our nutrition properly, we don't really need medicines. That's one of the common misconceptions, too. People think that these primitive people have, like, shaman medicine men and stuff like that. Not really. They have traditional ways of making their food and living their lives, and that's usually enough to keep them more or less healthy. These people didn't have words or concepts for cancer or diabetes or obesity, high blood pressure, all this stuff that plagues us today. These are all consequences of not living the natural way. And the next point I saved, and by the way, this is a big book. This is over 500 pages. 
So I've skipped a lot here. I didn't need to save the points that shows again and again and again that these people had good health, good teeth until they came into contact. But th that's very well documented in this book. You see people living in the same area. Some of them are perfect. Some of them are degenerated. Of course, the ones who are degenerated, they're the ones who are eating the modern foods of commerce and not doing all this other stuff that we're talking about. So this next point I saved, we're in Africa now, and he's talking about the Maasai, who very famously drink a lot of blood. They keep cattle, they drink the milk, but they also ritualistically puncture the jugular, drain a certain amount of blood, and patch it back up so the cow can keep going. Right Back to that thing about meat. It takes a lot of work to keep animals and raise animals, grow them up. None of these cultures raised animals just to slaughter them for their muscle meat. None. Not one of them. When they did slaughter an animal, they used the whole thing. They made soups from the bones, and then they ground up whatever was left of that, made that into bone meal, added that into their foods. And although Weston Price didn't really talk about it, they all used fire. They all burned wood or grass or sea moss, all this stuff for heating and cooking. And then they had concentrated plant-derived minerals left. That's what ashes are. And we're not going to get into that here. I've gone into that elsewhere. But that's a very important part of their mineral program. Although they wouldn't think of it like that. They would use the ash as a condiment and a thickener, much like we would use flour and spices today. But here, the point that I saved was about this blood draining process. And when sufficient blood was drawn, the torque was removed and the blood immediately stopped flowing. A styptic made of ashes was used. This serves to protect the wound from infection. So not only were ashes an amazing source of mineral supplement, used all over the world, used back in Neanderthal times. They would bury Neanderthals with a little clay pot full of wood ashes. This was sacred stuff. And before we had vitamins and minerals all figured out, back in the 1800s, they would say the essential nutrients are fat, protein, carbohydrate, and ash. Read old books. Again, before the chemistry was there, ash was considered an essential nutrient. And here they use it as wound disinfectant for their cows. And the blood is defibrinated by whipping it in the gourd. Fibrin or fibrin, it's a protein in blood. So they got rid of that by whipping it. And then the fibrin is fried or cooked, much as bacon or meat would be prepared. And the defibrinated blood is used raw, just as the milk is, except in smaller quantities. When available, each growing child receives a day's ration of blood, as does each pregnant or lactating woman. And formerly, the warriors used this food exclusively. Blood. Sounds gross to some people. Well, I've said this before, and yeah, I know, people can get squeamish. You might not know how delicious and satisfying blood is. Well, the Filipinos know, and several other cultures, I think the Italians, the Spanish and the Portuguese, if I'm not mistaken, still make blood soup, blood stew. They cook the meat in the blood. Sometimes this is called chocolate meat. For the Filipinos, it's called dinaguan. And dinaguan is one of my favorite dishes, if not my favorite dish of all time. It feels spectacular. Makes my brain buzz, make my whole body relax. Almost like a drug. The type of satisfaction I've never experienced from any other food. 
except to a smaller degree after I stopped being vegan for a while and started eating red meat again. I remember those first few times eating that red meat, just feeling so soothed, my brain feeling so good. And I've had the pleasure of being there with a handful of vegetarian vegans when they finally gave themselves permission to eat red meat again. Like I was sitting there in the room like, no, we, we can eat this. Don't, don't worry. Are you sure it's not, it's not going to be bad for me? So they eat the steak and they say right there, wow, I feel amazing. Well, I think that's the blood in it. And I actually think this is an essential nutrient. One of the best foods ever. Blood. Really hard to find blood. I haven't been able to find it here around Houston, Texas. Looking for it to make some dinaquan. But if you didn't know, a lot of that blood from the meat industry is put into what? Pet foods. Because pet foods are mandated by law to have enough nutrients so they don't get degenerative diseases in it. And you might hear some people say, oh, these dog food, cat foods, they got all these waste products in it. It's all a bunch of garbage because they just they put the hooves in and the ears and all this stuff. Okay, well, that's all connective tissue and blood. This is not junk. This is the most valuable parts of the animal. The organs, the connective tissue, and the blood. We eat the least valuable parts of the animal, a.k.a. the muscle. And these three sources here, back to the text, milk, blood, and meat, provide them with liberal supplies of bodybuilding minerals and the special vitamins, both fat-soluble and water-soluble. And I didn't save this next point, but I'm going to keep reading it. Their estimate of a desirable dairy stock, this is still the Maasai, is based on the quality, not quantity. They judge the value of a cow for keeping in their herd by the length of time it takes her calf to stand on its feet and run after it is born, which is only a very few minutes. This is in striking contrast with the practice of our modern dairymen who are chiefly concerned with the quantity of milk and quantity of butter fat rather than with its value as a source of special factors for nutrition. Many of the calves of the modern high-production cows of civilized countries are not able to stand for many hours after birth, frequently 24 hours. This ability to stand is very important in a country infested with predatory animals such as lions, leopards, hyenas, jackals, and vultures. And continuing reading, this reminded me of my experience in Alaska in studying the reindeer of the Eskimos. I was told that a reindeer calf could be dropped in a foot of snow and almost immediately it could run with such speed that the predatory animals, including wolves, could not catch it. And moreover, that these fawns would go almost immediately after their birth with the herd on the stampede and never be knocked down. So these cultures that are living off of these strong, fit animals are doing much better than the fat, sick animals that we have in feedlots in America. And not all of our animals are in feedlots, but many of them are. Especially anything you buy from restaurants, it's usually the cheapest ingredients they can possibly find. And inevitably their meats come from the big meat companies who keep stocks of animals that would be considered worthless by the Maasai. And skipping forward here, next point I saved, we're still in Africa. The lowest percentage of irregularity in dental cavities occurred in tribes living very largely on dairy and marine life. I said this earlier, dairy and marine life. These are the only two general categories of long-lived people that I can find. There's no such thing as a vegan long-lived colony. Despite what all the Blue Zone documentaries want to believe, 
It's pretty crazy, actually, that they can come to that conclusion. A couple of famous books come right to mind, The China Study and The Okinawa Program. It absolutely boggles my mind that these authors could go to China and say, oh, they eat lots of vegetables. Well, yeah, they do. But then write a whole book that says we should be vegan. This is nuts. The Chinese will eat anything that moves. I'm not saying that as a slander. That's, like, smart. But I'm wondering, have these authors ever been to a Chinatown or anything? Like, they, they see lots of vegetables and they come back and say, okay, we should eat all vegetables. That doesn't make sense. They do eat lots of vegetables in Okinawa as well, but they will also eat anything that moves. From the sea, from the land. My goodness, it's insane to promote a vegan diet based on these long-lived populations. None of them are vegan. All of them are either dairy or marine-based. And right here, in the same page, he says, For example, among the Maasai living on milk, blood, and meat, only 3.4% had irregularities. Among the Kikuyu and the Wakamba, 18.2% and 18.9% respectively had irregularities. These people were largely agriculturalists, living primarily on vegetable foods. So this idea of veganism, vegetarianism, is a very modern thing. There's a book, I don't have it with me. It was about the Khans, Genghis Khan. They considered all that stuff peasant food. Grains and vegetables and stuff, that's for the peasants. The real men, the real warriors, the strong races would be consuming these highly, highly valuable, highly concentrated, highly nutrient-dense foods. Blood, milk, meat, organs, all of the various tissues of the body, like, again, the stomach linings and all the connective tissue, the fascia, all this stuff, bones. Of course, they were using ash as well, salt, not agricultural products. And even populations here that weren't doing 100% well, but they were still eating their natural native diets. So he's talking about the Arab school at Omdurman. Among the pupils living almost entirely according to the native custom of selection and preparation of foods, 6.4% had irregularities. So that's not perfect. But in the native school at the modernized Khartoum, 17% had irregularities. So more than double, almost triple. In the native hospital at Khartoum, 70% had irregularities. Among the grain eaters of the West Nile, 25% had irregularities. And on and on. He, he did tons of these comparisons here. All over the world. And the next point I saved here, we're still in Africa. And he's quoting Major Brown, a high official of the British Government Administrative Department of Kenya, with very long experience. And he states here in the closing paragraph of his book, The Vanishing Tribes of Kenya. It must also be remembered that the blessings of civilization are not in practice by any means as obvious as some simple-minded folk would like to believe. It can be said with fair accuracy that among the tribes with which we have been dealing there is, in their uncontaminated society, no pauperism, no paid prostitution, very little serious drunkenness, and on the whole, astonishingly little crime, while practically everyone has enough to eat, sufficient clothing, and an adequate dwelling. According to the primitive native standard, of what civilized community can as much be said? Right, so we use the word primitive here, but this British government official 
was saying, well, hey, these people all have enough to eat. They're all clothed. They have an adequate dwelling according to their standards. It's not according to our standards, but of what civilized community can as much be said? Good point. There's no ghettos in the primitive world until they join civilization. Okay, skipping forward, chapter 12, we're in New Zealand now. And he says the Maori of New Zealand in his studies have shown to be the most immune race to caries. Caries means cavities. It's an old word for cavities. The most immune to cavities for which statistics are available. And of course, the Maoris would eat anything that moves on the land and subsist largely from the sea. Shows here a bunch of Maori with perfect teeth, perfect skeletons, well-formed dental arches. This is another part of Price's work here that showed that all these native populations, no matter what color they were or what race or whatever, they all had wide noses, wide nostrils. Why? Because their dental arch was fully formed. So all their teeth could fit. They don't need braces. They could have their wisdom teeth pop in, no problem. Remember, they didn't need dentists. And since their dental arch was properly formed, their nose could stretch properly across that and therefore let more air in. Right? You hear the term mouth breather? Well, that was a big problem. It was recognized in Price's day, especially when it comes to a lot of these delinquents that he was talking about earlier. Delinquents and criminals and basically stupid people. One of their common traits was that they were mouth breathers. Calling someone a mouth breather was equivalent to calling them stupid. Well, why? Your skeleton isn't fully formed. It's a sign of a deformation. And I'm not making fun of anyone here, by the way. I was a mouth breather. I was born with birth defects. My face is skinny, much like... The rest of us in the Western world, most of us have skinny faces, no matter what color our skin is. And that's not good. It means our face wasn't fully formed, and it means it's harder to get more oxygen in. So we have to breathe through our mouth. Well, that's not good. You're supposed to breathe through the nose. And breathing through your nose, it helps you filter out dust and allergens. It gives you more oxygen, and it humidifies the air. Mouth breathing dries out the mouth, and it also dries out the air. This could make you have bad breath. And the breath isn't a problem itself. It's just a sign that this is not how this is supposed to be. Pretty much everyone agrees that you have better air circulation when you breathe through the nose. And I'm just saying that these primitive people were formed properly, so breathing through the nose was a natural thing. And of course he shows lots of Maori with absolutely abominable teeth other health problems once they came in contact with the white man and the white powders, flour and sugar, jams and canned food and other foods of commerce. And skipping forward here, now he's just talking generally, comparing primitive and modernized dietaries, or diets as we would say. For the Indians living inside the Rocky Mountain Range in the far north of Canada, the successful nutrition for nine months of the year was largely limited to wild game chiefly moose and caribou. During the summer months, the Indians were able to use growing plants. During the winter, some use was made of bark and buds of trees. I found the Indians putting great emphasis upon the eating of the organs of the animals, including the wall of parts of the digestive tract. 
Much of the muscle meat of the animals was fed to the dogs. There we go, fed to the dogs. The stuff we buy in the grocery store, fed to the dogs. It is important that skeletons are rarely found where large game animals have been slaughtered by the Indians of the north. The skeletal remains are found as piles of finely broken bone chips, or splinters that have been cracked up. To obtain as much as possible of the bone marrow and the nutritive qualities of the bones. There we go. The bone marrow. The bone marrow makes your immune cells, much of them. It makes your blood cells. makes your stem cells. Bone marrow concentrates minerals and other nutrients. The bone marrow is one of the most nutritionally dense things on the earth. So they didn't leave much bones behind, these Indians. An important part of the nutrition of the children consisted in various preparations of the bone marrow, both as a substitute for milk and as a special dietary ration. And I'm actually just going to back up here for you. I didn't didn't save all of this, but... Here he's just summarizing how the various dietary programs of primitive races appear successful in controlling dental cavities and deformities. So he's, he's summarizing all these groups. He's going back to the Alpine valleys of the Swiss. Their nutrition is dependent largely on entire rye bread and dairy products. Remember, they're dairy-based. And I already said, if you talk to us these days, we're going to say no wheat, barley, rye, oats. And we've even added buckwheat and quinoa to the list. But these people were eating entire rye bread. What does entire rye mean? It means non-bulverized, non-denatured sat in the fields for a few days, let ferment a little bit and its enzymes ripen before they did anything with it. And then when they would pound it into flour, it would be very rough flour with the whole thing intact, basically, not just a little part of the grain, the whole thing, right? You hear people say whole grain. Your doctor still today will probably say whole grain. Well, it's not the same whole grain as they were consuming. And they're also consuming tons of other minerals and all this stuff. And it's quite difficult to grow these grains in massive quantities. Nothing like what we do today. So it's less milled. And they would stretch it with things like bone meal, things like ashes, herbs, spices, fruits and vegetables if they have them. And here he's saying these alpine people would eat meat about once a week and various vegetables, fresh in the summer season and stored for the winter season but meat about once a week. To me, that's about right. I'd actually like to decrease my own meat intake. I've I've decreased my portions big time, and we do eat organs and stuff. They're not always available. Usually, I can only find liver from a cow, and I can find uh, chicken kidneys, chicken giblets. Just There's not a lot of organs that are available. I can't find brain anywhere. can't find blood, as I already mentioned. You've got to go right to the butcher or right to the farmer for these things. And I'm actually taking up hunting. That's what I've been doing. I got my hunting license recently. I'm still trying to get my gun license back from the government of Canada. That's a long story. But I'll use a bow or use a trap just so I can get fresh animals with fresh organ meats. The Eskimos, which he talks about here as well, they would eat a lot of those organs raw. As soon as they pull the seal out of the water, boom, they're eating the organs right there. No cooking. And they will salt some of the meat and stuff, but they're eating as much of the organs as they can now. Warm. Not cooked. And it's not just any dairy. You know, these Swiss people, they go to great lengths 
to walk their cattle up the mountains so they get the fresh growing grass and all this stuff so that it produces more vitamins and more fat soluble nutrients and even the rye bread provided minerals abundantly in the outer hebrides and in scotland again their diet was adequate for maintaining a high immunity to dental cavities and preventing deformity consisting chiefly of oat products and seafoods including the wide variety of fish available there this diet included generally no dairy products since the pasture was not adequate for maintaining cattle and oats were the only cereal that could be manufactured satisfactorily in that climate. Some green foods were available in the summer, and some vegetables were grown and stored for winter. This diet, which included a liberal supply of fish, also included the use of livers of fish. One important fish dish was baked cod's head that had been stuffed with oatmeal and chopped cod's livers. They stuffed the head full of oats and livers. This was an important inclusion in the diets of growing children. Next, the Eskimos. Their diet consisted of a liberal use of organs and other special tissues of the large animal life of the sea, as well as of fish. The latter were dried in large quantities in the summer and stored for winter use. The fish were also eaten frozen, not cooked, frozen. Seal oil was used freely as an adjunct to this diet, and seal meat was specially prized and was usually available. Very, very fat meat, right, for seals and sea lions and walruses and whales. They have big layers of blubber, and they ate that blubber as well. Caribou meat was sometimes available. The organs were used. The fruits were limited largely to a few berries, including cranberries, available in the summer and stored for winter use. Several plant foods were gathered in the summer and stored in fat or frozen for winter use. A ground nut that was gathered by the tundra mice and stored in caches was used by the Eskimos as a vegetable. Stems of certain water grasses, water plants, and bulbs were occasionally used. The bulk of their diet, however, was fish and large animal life of the sea, from which they selected certain organs and tissues with great care and wisdom. These included the inner layer of the skin, of one of the whale species, which has recently been shown to be very rich in vitamin C. Fish eggs were dried in season. These were used liberally as food for the growing children and were recognized as important for growth and reproduction. This successful nutrition provided ample amounts of the fat-soluble activators and minerals from sea animal life. Now I'll tell you, I wish he did actually document more of what they were drinking. That's also something I'm interested in. Because you might not have ever heard this stuff before, but a lot of people have recognized the importance of these foods. But much less talked about and written about is what they were actually drinking. It's harder to find that information. And again, I didn't save all this, but I figured I'd read this section to you. It's very helpful. We already talked about the Indians of the Rocky Mountain Range. And next, the various archipelagos of the South Pacific and in the islands north of Australia... The natives depended greatly on shellfish and various scale fish from adjacent seas. These were eaten with an assortment of plant roots and fruits, raw and cooked. Taro was an important factor in the nutrition of most of these groups. It is the root of a species of lily, similar to elephant ears, used for garden decorations in America because of its large leaves. In several of the islands, the tender young leaves of this plant were eaten with coconut cream, baked in the leaf of the tea plant. 
In the Hawaiian group of islands, the taro plant is cooked and dried and pounded into powder and then mixed with water and allowed to ferment for 24 hours, more or less, in accordance with the stiffness of the product desired. Its use in this form was comparable in efficiency with its use on other archipelagos as a boiled root served much as we use potatoes. For these South Sea Islanders, fat-soluble vitamins and many of the minerals were supplied by the shellfish and other animal life from the sea. The native tribes in Eastern and Central Africa used large quantities of sweet potatoes, beans, and some cereals. Where they were living sufficiently near freshwater streams and lakes, large quantities of fish were eaten. Goats or cattle or both were domesticated by many tribes. Other tribes used wild animal life liberally. Some very unique and special sources of vitamins were used by some of these tribes. For example, in certain seasons of the year, great swarms of a large winged insect in Lake Victoria and many other lakes. And let me jump in here and comment. There's a lot of people sort of on our, you know, conspiracy level, don't trust the government and stuff, that they're all up in arms right now that the government has allowed or encouraged crickets to be used as a food source. And they're saying, we don't want to eat bugs, but what is it? We want to eat real meat. Well, remember what I'm saying here. Most of these people who do well in the wild do not prioritize meat. Again, the least valuable part of the animal. I've largely stayed quiet about this subject, but insects are actually very, very healthy. They are very, very concentrated nutritionally. I'm not saying I'm pro these cricket farms and whatever they do to them and put them in our food, especially without our knowledge. I'm not for that. But crickets and grasshoppers and locusts and many other bugs, they're very, very nutritious, actually. And many different people around the world have utilized insect life. And I've eaten insects, by the way. I was in the pet business many years ago, a lifetime ago. Many of our animals ate crickets and mealworms and other things. And I guess it's kind of an odd industry. So sometimes at like a reptile expo, for example, you'll see people serving chocolate crickets and mealworms and stuff. And they do this at the zoo too sometimes. In other places, you'll probably see chocolate-covered insects as a oddity or a novelty. And after tasting those, I decided to try just eating the cricket itself. And we would keep our own insects, right? We would have our animals, but we would also usually breed the feeders. So we would breed crickets and cockroaches and mice and rats and rabbits and all this stuff. So we actually have quite healthy colonies. And I know I feed these insects very good food. Usually fish food, by the way. Secret in the business. You feed your crickets fish food. High omega-3 fish food. So these crickets, instead of being a dusty, dull brown, they're like a glowing pink or orange. They're bursting with nutrients. And they actually taste good. Again, you might be getting squeamish here, but... To me, they taste like beef jerky, but not the same texture. It's much mushier. But they taste quite good if you can get your head around it. And eventually I would just start eating it in front of guests just to freak them out. They would say, what are you doing? Oh, why you just ate it. Meanwhile, it's a snack for me. It's a treat. Tastes better than a lot of the stuff in the store. Anyways, back to the text here. Another insect source of vitamins used frequently by the natives is the ant, which is collected from great ant hills that in many districts grow to heights of 10 feet or more. 
In the mating season, the ants develop wings and come out of the ant hills in great quantities and go into the air for the mating process. These expenditures are frequently made during or following a rain. The natives have developed procedures for inducing these ants to come out by covering over the opening with bushes to give the effect of clouds and then pounding on the ground to give an imitation of rain. We were told by the missionaries that one of the great luxuries was an ant pie, but unfortunately they were not able to supply us with this delicacy. Parts of Africa, like many other districts, are often plagued by vast swarms of locusts, big grasshoppers. They are gathered in large quantities to be cooked for immediate use or dried and ground into a flour for later use. They provide a rich source of minerals and vitamins. The natives of Africa use the cereals maize, beans, lingalinga, millet, and kaffir corn, cooked or roasted. Most of these were ground just before cooking. Among the aborigines of Australia, we found that those living near the sea were using animal life from that source liberally, together with the native plants and animals of the land. They have not cultivated the land plants during their primitive life. In the interior, they used freely the wild animal life, particularly wallaby, kangaroo, small animals, and rodents. All of the edible parts, including the walls of the viscera and the internal organs, are eaten. The native Maori of New Zealand used large quantities of foods from the sea, wherever these were available. Even in the inland food depots, mutton birds were still available in large quantities. These birds were captured just before they left the nests. They developed in the rockeries about the coast, chiefly on the extreme southern coast of the South Island. At this stage, the flesh is very tender and very fat from the gorging that has been provided by their parent. So as soon as these baby birds were getting ready to leave the nest, the Maori would take them, and they were all fattened up from their mother's feeding, basically. The value of this food for the treatment of tuberculosis was being heralded quite wildly in both Australia and New Zealand. In the primitive state of the islands, large quantities of land birds were available, and because of the fertility of the soil and favorable climate, vegetables and fruits grew abundantly in the wild. Large quantities of fern root were used. Where groups of the Maori race were found isolated sufficiently from contact with modern civilization and its foods, to be dependent largely on native foods, they selected with precision certain shellfish because of their unique nutritive value. Price here was impressed with the fact that the children in the school gave very little evidence of having active dental cavities. I asked the teacher what the children brought from their homes to eat at their midday lunch, since most of them had to come too great a distance to return at noon. I was told that they brought no lunch, but that when school was dismissed at noon, the children rushed for the beach, where, while part of the group prepared bonfires, the others stripped and dived into the sea and brought up a large species of lobster. The lobsters were promptly roasted on the coals and devoured with great relish and they used other seafoods he has a picture of. And here in the islands north of Australia, large quantities of seafood. Some of those islands, there was less than 1%. Cavities in the teeth examined. Another important seafood in these waters was the dugong, referred to as the sea cow in northern waters. And I'm finally skipping forward to the next point that I saved. It is important to note that in several of the primitive tribes studied, there has been a consciousness that not only the mother should have special nutrition, but also the father. 
In one group, very great value was placed upon a product obtained from a sea form known locally as the angelote or angelfish, which in classification is between a skate and a shark. The young of the angelata are born alive, ready for free swimming and capable of foraging for themselves immediately at birth. The eggs of the female before fertilization are about one inch in diameter, slightly oval but nearly spherical. They are used as food by all, but the special food product for men is a pair of glands obtained from the male. These glands weigh up to a pound each when they are dried. They have a recognized value among the natives for treating cases of tuberculosis, especially for controlling lung hemorrhages. The seafoods were used in conjunction with the land plants and fruits raised by means of irrigation in the river valleys. Together, these foods provided adequate nutrition for maintaining high physical excellence. So he's not the only one that has written about a lot of different native cultures who consider the nutrition of the man just as important, or maybe not as important, but very important in the health of the baby. And I don't think we're going to get into that right now. Just pointing that out. And the next point that I saved, he's talking about the Peruvians and the Andean Sierras. The available water is largely that provided to the streams from the melting snows and from rains in the rainy season. It will be realized that these sources of fresh water could not provide the liberal quantity of iodine essential for human growth and development. It was, accordingly, a matter of great interest to discover that these Indians use regularly dried fish eggs from the sea. So I guess they figured this out. The, the fresh water wasn't good enough. They had to use these other sources of nutrients. They wouldn't think of it in those terms, but they would go great distances to go and get fish eggs from the coast and bring them back up into the mountains. Commerce in these dried foods is carried on today as it no doubt has been for centuries. When I inquired of them why they used this material, they explained that it was necessary to maintain the fertility of their women. They needed the fish eggs to maintain the fertility of their women. Another sea product of very great importance, and one which was universally available, was dried kelp dried seaweed. Upon inquiry, I learned that the Indians used it so that they would not get big necks like the whites. Goiter, goiter, iodine deficiency. They put great effort into going and getting the kelp and the fish eggs so they don't get big necks like the whites. The kelp provided a very rich source of iodine as well as copper, which is very important to them in the utilization of iron for building an exceptionally efficient quality of blood for carrying oxygen liberally at those high altitudes. An important part of their dietary, we're still in Peru here, consists of potatoes, which are gathered and frozen, dried and powdered, and preserved in the powdered form. The powder is used in soups with llama meat and other products. Since the vitamin D group of activators is absent from nearly all plant products, but must be synthesized in animal bodies from the plant foods, where it is largely stored in organs, an adequate source had to be provided. The Indians of the highlands of Peru maintained colonies of guinea pigs, which were used in their stews. Let me interject here that if someone was asking me what we would do to change our food system to bring it more in line with Weston Price's ideas here, one of the things I would recommend is going back to eating more smaller animals. A lot of these populations may or may not catch a caribou or a whale, or whatever, an elephant. They would rely either on their herds, you know, cows and goats, as we mentioned, 
or the seafoods. Well, what's a lot of those seafoods? Small seafoods. They're not catching tuna every day. They're not catching shark every day. They're getting a whole bunch of smaller foods, which to me have a much more concentrated value. And it's easier to eat the bones and the organs and all, all that stuff. It's easier to make use of the entire animal. And I think we put way too much emphasis on big animals in our food supply, especially cows. Cows do have value, but I would like to eat more guinea pigs and rabbits and other small animals. To me, that makes much more sense nutritionally. And similarly, people ask about dogs too, and I'm, I'm not going to get fully into it, but people ask, should I feed my dog a raw diet and all this stuff? And many times when they do decide to do a raw diet, they're feeding it like steak and, and cow meat, muscle. Remember, we've, I've already said it. It's the least valuable part of the animal. And how often would a dog or a wolf get to actually catch a full big animal? Not every day is the answer. More likely, they're going to catch small birds, rodents, lizards, snakes. Maybe they get their hands on some eggs, maybe some fish. Not big animals is the point. So if I was feeding a dog a raw diet, I would not give it cow. How is a dog going to go catch a cow? I would be giving it small animals. And I think we should eat more small animals. It says here, the Peruvians were keeping guinea pigs. The ancient burials also showed that the guinea pig was a common source of food since mummified bodies of this animal were found. This is significant, since of all the animals that are used for experimental work, the guinea pig is probably the most efficient in synthesizing vitamin D from plants. They are very hardy. They live on a great variety of green plant foods and twigs and are very prolific. They do. They breed easily. They keep easily. In captivity, we can have guinea pigs that they just keep on living, some of them. Some people... They're like, wow, I got this guinea pig as a kid. It's still alive. My goodness. Yeah, they're very hardy animals, guinea pigs. Very, very easy to keep. And they apparently played a very important part in the physical excellence of the ancient cultures in Peru. And the next point I saved here. The Indians of British Columbia, Canada, who have been so efficient in preventing scurvy, have a plant product for the prevention and cure of diabetes. This has recently become known to the white man through the experience of a patient who was brought into the hospital at Prince Rupert, British Columbia. As reported in the Canadian Medical Journal, July 1938, Prince Rupert is near the boundary between British Columbia and Alaska on the coast. The patient came to that hospital for an operation and suddenly showed signs of diabetes, which required treatment with large doses of insulin. Dr. Richard Geeds Large asked him regarding the history of his affection, and what he had been taking. He was told that for several years he had been using an Indian preparation which was a hot water infusion of a root of devil's club, which is a spiny, prickly shrub. This medicine was in common use by the British Columbia Indians. The material was obtained and used in this hospital for the treatment of diabetes and was found to be quite as efficient and had the great advantage that it would be taken by mouth whereas the insulin, which is destroyed in the stomach by the process of digestion, must be injected. They could see very little difference in the efficiency of this preparation, whether taken internally or used hypodermically. This promises to be a great boon to the large group of individuals suffering from diabetes. It is also probable that its use will prevent the development of diabetes, and since the Indians used it for other affections, it may also become a very important adjunct in modern preventative medicine. Next point. 
One of the sources that I have found to be helpful in studying primitive races is an investigation of knapsacks. I have asked for the privilege of seeing what is carried in their knapsacks. I found dried fish eggs and dried kelp in the knapsacks in the high Andes. It is also of interest that among this group in the Andes, among those in Central Africa, and among the Aborigines of Australia, each knapsack contained a ball of clay, minerals, a little of which was dissolved in water. Into this they dipped their morsels of food while eating. Their explanation was to prevent sick stomach. This is the medicine that is used by the natives in these countries for combating dysentery and food infections. It is the treatment that was given to me when I developed dysentery infection in Central Africa while making studies there. The English doctor in Nairobi, whom I called in, said he would give me the native treatment of a suspension of clay. It proved very effective. Okay, and I'm not reading all the details, but all the little things that these people ate, like these parched beans and parched corn that was taken on long journeys in the Andes. As I said, I recommend reading this book thoroughly, studying it. I think this book should be taught to school children, should be taught to your children. This should be mandatory reading. I actually put this on my mandatory reading list on my website, notusbooks.org, in the review section. Since the first read, I considered this mandatory. And although it's widely known, this book is really not widely implemented, and it should be. How many of the things that we've read so far do you see in your grocery store or see in our food system? Not very much of it. And the next point I saved here, he's telling a story of a pilot who ran out of fuel in the Rocky Mountains. And they were traveling for days in despair. They didn't think they'd ever see their families again. But they ran into an Indian who was tracking a grizzly bear who, who was tracking them, the, the pilot, and his partner. And the Indian, after making an examination of his eyes, took him by the hand and led him to a stream that was coursing its way down the mountains. Here, as the prospector sat waiting, the Indian built a trap of stones across the stream. He then went upstream and waded down, splashing as he came, and thus drove the trout into the trap. He threw the fish out on the bank and told the prospector to eat the flesh of the head and the tissues back of the eyes, including the eyes, with the result that in a few hours his pain had largely subsided, his eye pain. In one day, his sight was rapidly returning. Right? Eat the eyes to give you the stuff that your eyes need. Like treats like. Common concept here in primitive diets and basic nutrition. We consider this still a useful adage that like treats like. You've got a bone and joint problem, you need to eat bones and joints or the stuff the bones and joints are made of. Eyes treat eyes, brain treats brain, etc. In one day, his sight was rapidly returning, and in two days, his eyes were nearly normal. Now, modern science knows that one of the richest sources of vitamin A, right, retinol, not going to get into the details, but there's two types of vitamin A. They should probably even be given totally separate names. But vitamin A from animals is called retinol, and then there's carotenes in plants, which are a pro-vitamin, meaning your body can take the carotenes, beta-carotene and the other carotenes, and convert it into retinol in the body. But it's not as efficient or effective as eating retinol itself. And retinol is highly concentrated in the eyes. And retinol is named after the retina. And the tissues in the back of the eyes also concentrate vitamin A. So does the liver. And I'm skipping forward to the next chapter about control of dental cavities. 
which was the, the primary purpose of this study. He's talking about a meal that he made to give children who were brought to a mission you know, with, with bad teeth and bad health. He came up with a meal to give them. And before I read this, I want to say that the nutrition in the food supply was already problematic back in Price's day, about 100 years ago. It's much worse now. So we're not going to rely on a meal to give you all the nutrition that you need. But to help these children, he was using about four ounces of tomato juice or orange juice and a teaspoonful of a mixture of equal parts of very high vitamin natural cod liver oil and especially high vitamin butter. Now, he was actually collecting samples of butter. And people were sending him butter from all over the world, basically, especially in America. And he was finding that when cows were eating grasses in the growing season, spring and early summer, that their milk, their butter, was, first of all, had more color in it, and it had a lot more vitamins in it, especially the fatty vitamins. Again, he didn't know exactly what these fatty vitamins were, but he knew this butter was much healthier than it was in other parts of the year. So he collected all this super high vitamin butter, and he included it in his program for these sick kids. So we give them a teaspoonful mixture of equal parts of the natural cod liver oil and this high vitamin butter at the beginning of the meal. They then received a bowl containing approximately a pint of very rich vegetable and meat stew made largely from bone marrow and fine cuts of tender meat. The meat was usually broiled separately to retain its juice and then chopped very fine and added to the bone marrow meat soup, which always contained finely chopped vegetables and plenty of yellow carrots. For the next course, they had cooked fruit with very little sweetening and rolls made from freshly ground whole wheat, which were spread with the high vitamin butter. The wheat for the rolls was ground fresh every day in a motor-driven coffee mill. Each child was also given two glasses of fresh whole milk, it means raw milk, not pasteurized. The menu was varied from day to day by substituting for the meat stew, fish chowder, or organs of animals. From time to time, there was placed in a two-quart jar a helping similar to that eaten by the children. This was brought to my laboratory for chemical analysis, which showed that these meals provided approximately 1.4 grams of calcium, so almost 1,500 milligrams of calcium, and 1.28 grams of phosphorus in a single helping in each course. Now, I'm, I'm not going to get into the calcium to phosphorus ratio, but that actually seems like a bit too much phosphorus to calcium there. But that's a great serving of calcium. That's absorbable. Remember, it's not what's in the food. It's how much you can absorb. And let me detour for a second. I'm actually reading a book right now called Don't Drink Your Milk by Frank Oski. And it's a small book here. I don't think I'm going to do a deep dive on this book. He's arguing that milk is bad. This book is from 1983. And just to illustrate the point that it's not total quantity of nutrients. It's how you can absorb them. Quoting here. The lack of relationship between the calcium in your diet and the amount that ultimately gets into your blood and then into your bones and teeth is best illustrated by the comparisons that have been made between infants drinking human milk or cow milk. Cow milk contains 1,200 milligrams of calcium per quart. Human milk only has 300 milligrams per quart. Yet, despite these differences, the infant receiving human milk actually absorbs more calcium into his body. So there's four times more calcium in cow's milk, but we don't absorb as much of it. And I do believe Oski's pretty much only talking about pasteurized milk there. So that's what I would blame for the poor absorption. 
pasteurization basically destroys the nutritional value of milk. Just saying, they're getting a great dose, these children, Weston Price was giving them a great dose, and they're probably absorbing it if it was raw. Since many of the children doubled up on the course, their intake of these minerals was much higher. And clinically, this program completely controlled the dental caries of each member of the group. So this stopped the dental cavities and reversed many of them. And he's even talking about how two different teachers came to him to inquire what had been done to make a particular child change from one of the poorest in the class in capacity to learn to one of the best. Dental caries is only one of the many expressions of our modern deficient nutritions. So he connects his nutrition thesis many times to mental health and mental capacity. Next point I saved here. One of our greatest difficulties in undertaking to apply the wisdom of the primitives to our modern problems involves a character factor. He's blaming our character. The Indians of the high Andes were willing to go hundreds of miles to the sea, on foot, to get kelp and fish eggs for the use of their people. Yet many of our modern people are unwilling to take sufficient trouble to obtain foods that are competent to accomplish the desired results. We're lazy, he's saying. We're too lazy to do it. And honestly, he's correct. He's largely correct. We could put more effort in, both as individuals and as a society, to actually provide high-nutrient foods, but we don't. We prioritize bushels per acre and how much milk a cow can give quantity instead of quality. Next point I saved is a small point. He's saying, my investigations have shown that when a high vitamin natural cod liver oil is used in conjunction with a high vitamin butter oil, the mixture is much more efficient than either alone. And that's just making the point that we need many different nutrients. Just because one food is super nutritious doesn't mean it's going to get perfect results. It needs to be mixed with the other nutrients. Again, he didn't understand all the individual nutrients because they weren't figured out at that point. But he figured out that you can't just use one high-nutrient food at a time. you got to combine them. And here he's talking about another report. Somebody else was trying to replicate his findings. They used only one part of my suggestion for checking the activity of dental cavities. I'm just changing the word caries to cavities for you guys. The diet of both their control group and the tested group was the exact same except for one item, i.e. one heaping teaspoonful twice daily of malt and cod liver oil. So all they did was add two teaspoons of cod liver oil in a day. In a group of 66 native girls, the 33 with the best teeth were used as a control group. The remaining 33 were given the additional fat-soluble vitamins. In six months' time, resistance of this group was raised by 41.75% as compared with the control group. The nutrition of the test group was not adequately reinforced to obtain the best results. There was a marked inadequacy of mineral-carrying foods in proportion to the energy and heat-providing factors in the foods. And he's, he's just saying it wasn't good enough, but they still got a pretty good result. And skipping forward, the next point that I saved, he's quoting another book here from G.T. Baden in his book, Among the Ibos of Nigeria. It is not only a matter of disgrace, but an actual abomination for an Ibo woman to bear children at shorter intervals than about three years. It's a disgrace to them to have children in intervals less than about three years. The idea of a fixed minimum period between births is based on several sound principles. The belief prevails strongly that it is necessary for this interval to elapse in order to ensure the mother being able to recuperate her strength completely and thus be in a thoroughly fit condition to bear another child. Should a second child be born within the prescribed period, 
The theory is held that it must inevitably be weak and sickly, and its chances jeopardized. You ever hear modern OBGYNs or general practitioners telling you to space out your births? They probably don't consider it any of their business. Well, if it's their business to ensure healthy pregnancies and healthy childbirths, it should be their business to tell them to space out their births. Next point I saved here. The addition of the organs to the foods of the captive animals born in the jungle supplied them with foods needed to make reproduction possible. Their young, too, could reproduce efficiently. As I studied this matter with the director of a large lion colony, he insisted in detail the organs and tissues that were particularly selected by the animals in the wilds, and also those that were provided for animals reproducing in captivity. And the end of this paragraph here, if we observe the parts of an animal that a cat eats when it kills a small rodent or bird, we see that it does not select exclusively the muscle meat. Animals are smarter than we are, apparently, because when they make a kill, they eat the organs first. A lot of times they'll walk away from the carcass, and you get the scavengers, the vultures, and the hyenas. They come and eat the muscle meat. Really just trying to hammer that point in, that the muscle is the least valuable part of the animal. The natives know this. The animals know this. We don't know this. In our grocery store, it's mostly just muscle. Junk. And the next point I saved here is a bit too technical. I'm just going to move on to the next, next one. Abnormalities are described in the pregnancies of rats maintained on diets deficient in vitamin A in various degrees. Prolongation of the gestation period up to 26 days in severe cases and a long and difficult labor which might last two days and often resulted in the death of both the mother and the young were characteristic. So he's not the only one to report on how important vitamin A is. And vitamin A deficiency can cause all kinds of things from birth defects to miscarriages and, yeah, straight up killing the mother and babies unable to actually go through with the pregnancy. This is one of the reasons why I've actually officially added liver to our recommended food list. For years in this business, we've said, we don't really care what you do eat. We care what you don't eat, right? We're telling you to get off processed foods get on nutrient supplements because we're not counting on there being enough nutrients in the foods, but there are exceptions to that. We've always recommended eating eggs and some other foods. You can message us, by the way. Again, if you want a protocol for yourself and you want our food blurbs, reach out to us. Reach out to me on Instagram or on email. Again, the information is in the description of this podcast, and you can find it all on my website, notusbooks.org. I'll give you the blurbs, no problem. We'll also give you the rest of our recommendations, but I'm just saying I've added liver officially to this to boost the vitamin A. There are other nutrients in liver, but I know you can't buy eyes in the grocery store. There is some vitamin A in our products, but I want to get even more into you. Whether you're sick or not, I'm recommending everyone eat liver from now on. One to three times a week, by the way. Next point I saved here is similar to a point we read earlier. An impressive comment was made to me by Dr. Ramig, the superintendent of the Government Hospital for Eskimos and Indians in Anchorage, Alaska. He stated that in his 36 years among the Eskimos, he had never been able to arrive in time to see a normal birth by a primitive Eskimo woman. How many times do you hear of a woman in labor for days? He says he's never been able to arrive in time to see a normal birth by a primitive Eskimo woman. But conditions have changed materially with the new generation of Eskimo girls, born after their parents began to use foods of modern civilization. 
Many of them are carried to his hospital after they had been in labor for several days. One Eskimo woman who had married twice, her last husband being a white man, reported to Dr. Romig and myself that she had given birth to 26 children and that several of them had been born during the night and that she had not bothered awaken her husband but had introduced him to the new baby in the morning. The birth was not a very big deal, not enough to even wake the husband. And he's talking a lot about vitamin A here. I did save another point here. Some researchers here have shown that a lack of vitamin A in diets of pigs has resulted in extreme incoordination and spasms. They also emphasize that guilt spread prior to the onset of the nervous symptoms either aborted or farrowed dead pigs. So they either aborted them or had stillbirths. Another researcher has shown that a lack of vitamin A produces in females a disturbance in estrus and ovulation, resulting in sterility. Yeah, infertility can be caused by vitamin A deficiency too. It's just very, very important, vitamin A. We don't talk about it enough. I'm trying to talk about it more. Hopefully I'll do a deep dive on here soon. I've done deep dives on other books about specific nutrients like vitamin D, vitamin C, calcium, and hopefully I can actually go through all 90 essential nutrients in this format. So stay tuned to the podcast for that. Further, he states that resorption of the fetus may be produced by lack of vitamin A, even on a diet containing an abundance of vitamin E, which is known as the anti-sterility vitamin. Yeah, vitamin E is known as a fertility vitamin, basically, but we don't like to really pick the importance of nutrients over the other. We don't like to compare them like that because you need all of them. You need all 90 essential nutrients. They all work together. They're all very important in their own way. Vitamin E being known as a fertility vitamin is not exactly fair because you need vitamin A as well and the other essential nutrients. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Several of them are involved directly in fertility and sterility. Next point I saved is about alcohol. In a controlled study, the normal man is found to produce 19% of morphologically defective sperm. By contrast, the chronic alcoholic patient produces 75% of defective sperm. Previously, it has been assumed that as much as 25% or 30% of abnormal sperm were a good evidence of lowered fertility, if not sterility. But the fertility of these chronic alcoholics was not diminished, the authors claim. So this is important, actually. These alcoholics were producing bunk sperm. Sperm that was no good. But they were not infertile. So what happens when a baby is born from this junk sperm? Well, I'll leave that up to you to ponder. And here he is talking about vitamin E. 
An inadequate amount of vitamin E produces marked disturbances in the growth of offspring of rats. The changes observed are similar in several ways to those produced by hypophysectomy, or removal of the pituitary gland. Marked degranulation of the anterior pituitary is found in both the abnormal young and the adult sterile animals. Lack of vitamin E therefore produces a virtual nutritional hypophysectomy in the young rat. So basically, vitamin E deficiency is the same as removing the pituitary gland in a rat. And the uh, next point I saved might be controversial. First of all, he calls them Mongolian, mongoloid. Uh, this is kind of a, a term for retarded, basically. Doesn't mean Mongolian the country. Mongolian imbeciles are very often born last in a long family. This fact, which was pointed out many years ago by Shuttleworth, has led clinicians to believe that Mongolism is to some extent a product of the exhaustion of maternal reproductive powers due to frequent childbearing. The conclusion is widely accepted with the reservation that the affected child is not necessarily born at the end of the family. Several cases have been reported as firstborn. There is, however, ample evidence that Mongolian imbeciles have a significantly later birth rank than normal children. So I would agree with this, and this, again, this is very controversial, but we do see clearly generational degeneration, meaning my mom is actually much healthier than I was. Than I, well, I'm healthy now, but I was born with problems, and my mom's kind of healthy as an ox. She almost never gets sick. I've seen her sick once in my life. She did have osteoporosis. We reversed that with the nutrients, right? When we found out that that my pain was all reversed from nutrient supplementation, I got her on the same stuff. And it's no wonder. I was born with bone and joint problems. And I lived with them for 26 years. So obviously she had osteoporosis. She was obviously deficient when she gave birth to me. And it wasn't corrected until we both basically did it around the same time. So probably your parents are healthier than you are. And probably your grandparents are healthier than they were. Now I know most of our grandparents and stuff lived in the modern world just like we did. But still, they probably were healthier than you are. And if you eat just like them, you're not going to live as long as they do. They might have been able to drink moonshine whiskey and smoke cigarettes and live to 95. You probably will not. There's not as much nutrients in the food supply with each generation. And we do see this very, very commonly. People come to us with a sick child, a diseased child, or a child with birth defects, and their older siblings don't have it. Now, I'm a bit of an exception here. I was the firstborn, and I, I had birth defects. And my brother, my little brother, at first glance, might not have seemed as bad as me, but I know now that we missed a bunch of signs of poor health. And he made poor choices in his life as well. And I don't talk about this much, but he dropped dead from heart failure at age 25. So even though my health problems were more obvious, uh, clearly he was not that robust. And I don't like to get personal here, and you know I don't like to speak ill of the dead or anything like that, but we're among friends here, I guess, so let me mention this. I argued with the pathologist about this, who did his autopsy, because his pathologist wanted to blame drugs. And my brother didn't do very many drugs. He did some uppers, you know, he worked two jobs, he worked at night, he was doing security, so he would take some uppers or something in between shifts. I'm not saying this is good. But I am saying that Keith Richards is still alive, right? There's a lot of rock stars still alive 
from the 70s and 60s who did tons and tons of drugs. I did tons of drugs. Way more than him. My brother was broke. He could barely do that many. I'm just saying, the pathologist wanted to blame drugs. And I was saying, hey, there has to be some sort of systemic weakness here. And I would also blame his diet. He was living on bread, basically. Of course, bread, especially modern bread, inflames the intestines, prevents nutrients from being absorbed properly. And it wasn't exactly heart failure. It was actually a leaky valve, which to me is a multi-nutrient deficiency. So I'm saying that we see this in my own family as well. Even though I was born with obvious birth defects, my brother clearly had health problems as well. And my sister, I'm not going to get into her details, but she has more serious health problems than either of us. She's still alive, thank God. But there is very clearly less and less nutrients available for each one of us. And we do see this commonly. It doesn't always follow this pattern, but very generally, if... The mother isn't supplementing, she doesn't have enough nutrients for the firstborn. The firstborn might not be in obviously bad health, but the succeeding ones, the younger ones, tend to have worse health than the older ones. And actually, before I get on to the next point, since I mentioned my sister, I would like to bring up that I said that I would help her with her business. And I know this is a little bit of a long shot, but many of you guys are in Canada, and if any of you happen to live in Lindsay, Ontario, or in the area, Kawartha Lakes, or know somebody that's in that area, my sister and her soon-to-be husband, they're getting married in a couple of months, are in the childcare field, and their dream is to have a homeschooling business. They've got it all set up, and that's actually why they moved to Lindsay. They got a nice big farmhouse just around the corner from the downtown. It's got this attachment that is going to serve as the school. It's got two nice classrooms in there. It's all set up. They've got tons of toys and other things in the backyard. You know, we dug a sand pit out, brought a bunch of sand in. They've got a little swing set. It's all being set up for children. There's a nice acre property there, big yard. And both her and her fiancé have diplomas in child care, especially dealing with special needs children, autistic children more specifically. They have already worked extensively with many children, especially severely handicapped children. But now they're finally ready. They moved out there this year. They're finally ready to actually start advertising a homeschool business. They didn't get any clients for the start of this school year in September 2023. So that's why I'm here telling you about it. And I'm hoping the network effect is real and that you may know somebody in the area. And maybe they're fed up with the public school system just like we are. My sister's a very different person from me. I am not good with children at all. She is. They're very passionate about this. They've both basically dedicated their lives to this. They are both Christian. I don't identify with the religion, but they intend to build values into what they do. Not like it's going to be a religious school and they're going to read the Bible or anything, but they definitely believe that all this nonsense they're teaching in public schools now, about all this LGBTQ stuff, oh, don't worry, if you're six years old, you can chop your penis off if you feel like it. You can get on life-altering hormone replacement therapy if you feel like it. Oh, and we don't even have to tell your parents, don't worry about it. They're very, very against this stuff, and I don't blame them. You don't need a religious background to feel that way. So they intend to stick to the curriculum as required by the province and encourage other good values. So if you or anyone you know are interested in this service, you can contact me. They don't have a website currently. We just got their logo and everything all set up, and as I mentioned, they just finished setting up all the classrooms and everything. 
and they are willing to consider daycare type of clients. They do hope that it could just be regular homeschool clients, but but if they don't get any of those, they're willing to do the daycare thing as well. Either way, they would be in very good hands. And since obviously you know they're connected to me, things like special diet requirements are absolutely possible to work into the program. And I guess if you didn't know, if you are in the area, since my mom is in the area, if necessary, you could pick up supplements and stuff from me and other things that I sell, like frequency tuning discs or my books. I know a lot of people don't like the fact that my books are only available on Amazon. Well, it's not true. I could mail you books. It will cost a little bit more because Amazon handles the distribution and it's a really good deal for you and me. But I do print them out and I do keep a stack there at my mom's house. And I'm not there very often, but if I am in town and you need me to see you, if it's some kind of a serious case or something, we could arrange this. Now you know. I really don't think it's necessary to meet in person in the vast majority of cases, but there's no harm. And if you'd like to arrange some sort of talk or, or meeting or event, that's also a possibility. I haven't done real-life events that are health-focused. I haven't done any of those in Ontario since before the pandemic. I'm not eager to start doing those again because we're very busy online. We've got people from all over the world coming to us, but there is something special about meeting in person. And since they just moved there, we don't really know anyone in the area anyways, so it's good to have these contacts in general. Their prices are competitive, by the way, in comparison to other similar homeschool services, and they really don't have any experience in business, so I've been talking with them about being more flexible on their prices, like they just checked what other people charge for homeschooling, and they've set their prices there. But of course, it may be a little bit out of reach for the average family, it's not a ton of money. We're talking somewhere around $10,000 Canadian for a whole year, which for basically a private education is a pretty good deal to me. And I'm not telling them to drop it down in half or anything, but there are some flexibility options. For example, we all know that the regular public schools go very slow. If you've ever tried a homeschool program, you can whip through it pretty quickly. You might be able to do a whole week of a regular standard curriculum in one day. So they do have the option for the child just to be in their care for the curriculum, which is probably not going to take five days of the week. And they're setting their prices based on a daily schedule. So the $10,000 a year, which is in the top of my head, by the way, that's not set in stone, but I think that's what their number is. That accounts for five days a week, full time. So Lindsay, Ontario people, you can reach out to me by email. My email is in the description of this podcast, and of course, you can find it on my website, notusbooks.org, in the channels section, and I can put you in contact with them. Now, back to the book here. There's something very interesting I saved, and I'm not going to read you the entire thing. Dr. Price is talking about a case of a mongoloid imbecile. I know, these are old-timey terms, but he was a typical Mongolian idiot, is what he says here. He was 16 years old. He had two older sisters, as we were just talking about, birth order, so he's the youngest here. His mother was a partial invalid when he was born late in her life. We have no data about other children who may have been lost in this family. This boy at 16 was infantile in many of his characteristics and developments. The genitals were those of a boy eight years old. By the Binet test, he had a mentality of about four years. Some of his bones had not united. 
He played on the floor with blocks and rattles like a child. His interest was in children's activities. And the outstanding physical characteristic, which brings Price into this, was his maxillary arch, which was so much smaller than the mandibular arch that it went entirely inside it. So the maxillary arch is your top arch on your top teeth, and the mandibular is on the bottom teeth. So the top part of his jaw sat inside the bottom part. It wasn't fully formed. So Price comes in and says, in order to give him a masticating surface, mastication means chewing, so in order to get his teeth to line up, with the hope of helping him physically and mentally, since he knew that several cases had already benefited by such an operation, he determined to widen his arch by moving the maxillary bones apart about one half inch. And he shows this, he has pictures of the jaw before and after, so he made his jaw correct, basically, with an operation, and they used adrenaline and cocaine to shrink some tissue. I don't know the details of this procedure. But before the operation, the quantity of air that he was able to inhale through his nostrils was so scant that he continuously breathed with his mouth open. At night, he was forced to lie with something like his coat rolled into a hard ridge and placed under the back of his neck, and his head pushed far back to a position that it would open his mouth and retain it so, or he would awaken strangling because of the closing of his mouth. So if he didn't prop his head up, his mouth would close and he'd wake up not being able to breathe. When they corrected this, there was a very great change in his physical development and mentality. This is all they did. He didn't report changing his nutrition here. He reset his jaws properly. And there was a change in his development and mentality. This is pretty amazing to me. He grew three inches in about four months. His mustache started to grow immediately. 16 years old here, he didn't have a mustache. And in 12 weeks' time, the genitals developed from those of a child to those of a man, and with it, a sense of modesty. His mental change was even more marked. The space between the maxillary bones was widened about one half inch in about 30 days. Not describing how he accomplished this, he goes into some detail. But he's saying that the outward movement of the maxillary bones which formed the roof of the mouth and the sides of the nose, by pressure on the temporal bones, which are the bones on the side of the skull by your temples, of course, which connect into the jaw. If you didn't know, the skull is not considered one bone. It's got different compartments, so to speak. So this put pressure on the temporal bones and produced a tension downward on the floor of the anterior part of the brain, thus stimulating the pituitary gland in the base part of the brain. And your pituitary gland is often called the master gland, which is also stimulated by sunlight, full-spectrum light, directly into the eyes. You don't have to stare at the sun, but when you get full-spectrum light in the eyes, it stimulates the pituitary gland. To me, this is very important for hormonal problems. On another day, we'll do a PCOS episode or a hormonal episode in general, and this is going to be something I will mention there. You want to stimulate the pituitary gland without wearing glasses or sunglasses or looking through a window. This is direct sunlight getting into the eyes because when you stimulate that gland, that gland tells the thyroid what to do. The thyroid tells the rest of the body what to do. Basically, all the glands communicate together and a lot of the time it starts with the pituitary, specifically when it comes to female hormones and ovulation. So he moved his bones around in his jaw, and he's saying that stimulated the pituitary gland. And in a few weeks' time, he passed through stages that usually take several years, so he rapidly developed. 
and he suddenly wanted to do more adult activities and even teenage activities like pulling pranks on people. Remember, he was a child before, basically, in a 16-year-old's body, but he rapidly developed, even to the point where he was asking a woman on a dance. This only took about 12 weeks. That's a very incredible story to me. And he talks a little bit more about the independence he was able to gain after this procedure. And although it didn't save the point, Price and some other doctors at this time link the appearance of Mongolism to a failure of pituitary development. Because there's been experiments where they cut out the pituitary gland of rats and so on and, and see how they develop. And by the way, the modern word for Mongolism is Down syndrome. So if this whole time you're picturing what this child looked like, he looked like a child with Down syndrome. Now, we would say now in our nutritional camp with Dr. Wallach that this is largely a zinc deficiency in embryo. And we have actually reversed it in embryo, in pregnancy. Dr. Wallach reversed a very famous case all the way up at 13 weeks of pregnancy because they can tell if you have a Down syndrome child in the womb. Some people disagree on how accurate that test is. But nonetheless, we have people who have tested positive for Down syndrome and the doctor is pressuring them in to get an abortion and they do our program and the child is born perfectly healthy. That famous case that I mentioned, it was actually in Lauren Knievel, which is Evil Knievel's niece. And I do believe that was a couple of decades ago at least, so that child is now a grown man and he's perfectly fine. We can't guarantee, of course, these things happening, but... We do have strong confidence at least up to 13 weeks. Next point I saved here, Professor Hooten of Harvard. And Hooten wrote to the foreword to this book as well. He's actually a fairly famous name in the nutrition world as well. And he was examining various Pueblos of the Western Plains in America, looking at skeletons and finding a progressive breakdown. These findings show that there has been, over the period of years, a progressive increase in skeletal deformities including arthritis and dental cavities, together with a reduction in stature, suggesting a direct relationship to progressive depletion of the soil. So soil gets more depleted, skeletons get worse and worse over time. And he's not the only one to report that. And Price links this to a progressive difficulty that farmers in America have had keeping cattle on a certain acre of land. You know, at first it could handle, say, 50 cows. A few seasons later... Maybe it's down to 40. A few decades later, maybe they're down to four or five cows, eight cows that that land can handle. It makes perfect sense to me. Next point I saved is also fairly interesting. I hadn't remembered reading this on the first time. It is important to keep in mind that morbidity and mortality data... Morbidity means having a disease, and mortality means dying from a disease, by the way. For many diseases, follow a relatively regular course from year to year with large increases in the late winter and spring, and a marked decrease in summer and early autumn. So more people get diseases and die in the winter and spring, and morbidity and mortality decreases in the summer and fall. Very interesting to me. I would of course correlate this with access to vitamin D, but also connecting it to what Price talked a lot about in this book, the fact that the butters and the butter fat, they all had a richer color and a richer nutrient value when the cows were feeding on springtime and early summer grasses. When the grasses are in their growth phase, the cows are eating that and they're producing much healthier milk with more nutrients in it. So of course, 
disease and death goes down during the time when we're eating foods that have more nutrients in it. If you were eating butter year-round, that butter is not the same year-round. It's healthier during the time that the cows are feeding on that spring and summer grass. The rise and fall of the level of morbidity with the changing season produces curves that are exceedingly regular for the same place from year to year. The distribution, however, is distinctly different for different latitudes and altitudes. It is of further special importance to note that the curves for the southern hemisphere, with its opposite seasons, are in reverse of those of the northern hemisphere, and have very similar levels for the same seasonal periods. So springtime in the south is the opposite of spring in the north, but you see the same basic correlation. More people getting disease and dying in the winter and spring compared to the summer and fall. And he says that he obtained the figures for levels of morbidity for several diseases in several countries, including the U.S. and Canada. And he says that it does not follow the sunshine curve, but follows the curve of vegetable growth. Well, I'm going to put vitamin D in there as a factor as well. And in places further north that have shorter growing seasons, the curve also shortens. A particularly important phase of this study is the finding of a lower level of vitamins throughout the year in those districts which correspond with the areas of the United States and Canada that have been longest settled. More soil depletion. They've been farming on it longer. You grow the plants in the topsoil, you pull the plants away, the plants take the minerals in the topsoil with them. He's talking about another study that somebody else made in Toronto. Their figures for children's diseases included chickenpox, measles, nephritis, scarlet fever, hemorrhage of newborn, tetany, and retropharyngeal abscess were arranged according to the incidence for each month. All of these diseases show a relatively high incidence during February and March, rising in December and January, falling during April and May, and reaching a very low level in midsummer, then making a rapid increase during the autumn. These are the opposite to the vitamin levels found in the dairy products of Ontario for the same months. Remember, this is like a hundred years ago. Have you ever heard this before, if you didn't read this book? I've never heard anyone else talk about this. Definitely not our governments. They think a potato is a potato and soil is soil. It's not true. He likens this back to his study of the Swiss people up in the mountains and valleys. For 1,200 years, during which time a written history of the valley has been kept, the people have maintained a high level of physical excellence, providing practically all their food, shelter, and clothing from the products raised in the valley. And great care was used to carry back to the soil all of the enrichment, compost, and other mineral-rich things, ash, bone, clays, silt, in this manner, extensive depletion of the minerals required for food for animals and human beings may be prevented. This practice is in striking contrast to that in many of the agricultural districts of the United States, in which the minerals are systematically shipped from the land to the cities. Right? Don't think about crops, think about minerals. They grow the crops in the soil, and then they ship those crops to the city. But he's saying they're basically exporting their minerals, and they're not putting them back. They're shipped from the country to the cities, there to be dissipated to the ocean through the sewage system. Because, of course, the waste, the human waste in cities, what does it do? It goes into the sewage system. A lot of that does go out to the sea because many of our most populated cities, not just in America, but in the world, are on the seaside. It's definitely not importing them back into the countryside for growth. So we've exported our minerals. 
Among many primitive races, there is some attempt to preserve the fertility of the soil. For example, in Africa, many of the tribes that depend in part on agriculture cleared off only a few acres in the heart of a forest and cropped this land for a limited number of years, usually less than ten. Great care was taken to prevent the loss of the hummus, the living topsoil, both through drenching rains and wind erosion. And part of this was done by keeping entangled root systems, forest and bush, keeping it around the field. Instead of just clearing hundreds and thousands of acres, they would only clear a small plot and they would leave the vegetation around that plot so that the roots kept the moisture in the soil for the plot that they're using for growing. Because without all those roots and everything, the soil becomes dry and loose, it doesn't hold water, and it will, it will blow away from the wind and get washed away from the rains. Sears has stated that bare ground left by the plow will have as much soil washed off in 10 years as the unbroken prairie will lose in 4,000. So we speed up the process of soil erosion and thus mineral erosion by plowing fields and not doing any of these protective measures. In nature's program, minerals are loaned temporarily to the plants and animals and the return to the soil is essential. And I didn't save this point, but this is something that we talk about a lot. The fact that damming all the important rivers in our world has caused a major problem. We dam these rivers for electricity generation and flood control, and both of those things are a problem. Electricity took us away from wood, sea moss, rice straw, whatever we were burning, because the product of burning is ash, and ash is concentrated plant-derived minerals. And as the plant sucks up a mineral through a relationship with the fungus and the bacteria in the soil. They pre-digest minerals, basically. This is another problem with modern pesticides and herbicides, that when you douse the ground in these chemicals, it kills the bacteria and fungus in the soil, so the fungus in the soil no longer pre-digests the minerals. What does pre-digest mean? It means it basically splits apart rocks into tiny little particles that get ready to be absorbed into the plant. As they're absorbed into the plant, they're also given an electric charge, an ionic charge. So when a mineral goes into a plant, it's no longer a rock. It's a tiny, tiny nano or picoparticle, which is easy to absorb. In general, the smaller something is, the easier it is to absorb. And it's given an electric charge. And of course, our body has an electric charge. Our intestines have an electric charge. And this is a large part of how things are absorbed in the body and how they work in the body with enzymes. Enzymes also have an electric charge. So think of a magnet, positive, negative. All these different things in our body have different electrical charges so that they can absorb each other or meet with each other and be utilized, right? One of the reasons we make a big deal about minerals and vitamins is that they're used as cofactors with enzymes. Enzymes are proteins that do work in the body. So, of course, they need the mineral and vitamin cofactors in order to do their job. But if these are minerals without an electric charge, then the enzyme can't use it. This is why we're so strong on plant-derived minerals. But anyways, the other major problem with damming the river is that the rivers no longer flood. So he's talking about here, another procedure for replenishing the depleted soils is by the annual spring overflow of great water systems, which float enrichment from the highlands of the watersheds to the lower plains of the great waterways. The rivers flood in the lowlands, which is where most of our civilizations were built, and they don't just flood with water, they flood with mud and silt and clay and other things that they've dredged up from their long journey in the highlands. So minerals and all this stuff is being pulled down from the mountains 
and it's allowed to flood in the lowlands. That's where we would do our growing, and that's what would be replenishing these fields every year. This is illustrated by the history of the Nile, which has carried its generous blanket of fertilizing hummus and rich soil from the high interior of Africa northward, because the Nile runs north, over its long course through the Sudan and Egypt into the Mediterranean, and thus made it possible for the borders of the Nile to sustain a population of greater density than that of either China or India. The salvation of Egypt has been the fact that the source of the Nile has been beyond the reach of modernizing influences that could destroy nature's vast stores of these replenishing soil products. When human beings have deforested vast mountainsides at the source of the great waterways, this whole problem has been changed. A similar situation has occurred in China. Her two great rivers, the Yangtze and the Yellow River, having their sources in the isolated vastness of the Himalayas in Tibet, have through the centuries provided the replenishment needed for supporting the vast population of the plains of those great waterways. Together with this natural replenishment, the Chinese have been exceedingly efficient in returning to the soil the minerals borrowed by the plant and animal life. Their efficiency as agriculturalists has exceeded that of the residents of most parts of the populated world. And we say this all the time. We give credit to a lot of ancient Chinese practices, such as the feeding of their animals. They feed them bones and joints, bone meal. We do this as modern farmers, but it took us hundreds of billions of dollars to figure it out in research over the course of the entire 20th century, basically. We put massive effort into figuring out how to sustain our livestock in the modern world. But they figured this out in China like a thousand years ago to prevent all kinds of problems, including all of the bone and joint problems and associated calcium deficiency problems like kidney stones, which will kill your bull if it has it. It'll develop water belly and die if it gets kidney stones. It's not just painful inconvenience like us. Your bull will die if it happens. You have to prevent those deficiencies. It is a calcium and cofactor deficiency, and the Chinese figured this out a thousand years ago. I'm just saying, they were good agriculturalists. They understood. You can't be lazy about this. You have to put great effort into putting minerals back in the soil, and you have to give your livestock extra minerals, just like we need extra minerals. And he's talking about how the story of Europe and America has been vastly different from any of these things. We just clear-cut vast areas and hope for the best, and it has not worked out the best. Skipping forward to the next point that I saved. In a city in the vicinity of a big ranch he was investigating here in the western states of America, a big ranch that were formerly able to produce from 93 to 95 healthy calves per 100 cows, a good, nice, healthy rate of replenishment. Most of their cows are able to reproduce every single year. That's how it used to be. And now they were getting only 40 to 44 calves per 100 cows. Huge drop. In a city in the vicinity, Price inquired of the director of public health what the death rate was among their children up to one year of age. He stated that the figures were progressively increasing in spite of the fact that they were giving free hospitalization and free prenatal and postnatal care for all mothers who could not afford to pay for the service. The death rate had more than doubled in 50 years. I asked how he interpreted the increasing mortality rate among the infants and mothers. His comment was, in effect that they could not explain the cause, but that they knew that the mothers of this last generation were far less physically fit for reproduction than their mothers or grandmothers had been. 
Why? Because free hospitalization, free doctors and medical care does not prevent disease, has nothing to do with it. These longest lived populations don't have doctors or dentists. America still, for some reason, believes that if we build enough hospitals and hire enough doctors that everything will be good. But drugs, tests, and surgeries have nothing to do with health. They can save your life in an emergency, and that's basically it. Hospitals will not put minerals back into the soils. You can have all the doctors and nurses you want. This is not a medical problem. It's a nutritional problem. And he's talking about the recognized difficulty of putting these minerals back into our soils right now. And I'm not going to go into that. I plan on doing a podcast very soon about my ideas on how we could possibly fix at least some of these food problems. Problems in our agriculture and livestock. Next point I saved here is a little bit of a high note. We're getting towards the end of the book. Those who find themselves depressed by this current interpretation of controlling forces would do well to recall the experiment on pigs referred to in chapter 17 and 18, in which a large colony all born blind and maimed because of maternal nutritional deficiency, from vitamin A deficiency, they took vitamin A away from these pregnant pigs, and the piglets were born blind and maimed, deformed, degenerated. But they were able to beget offspring with normal eyes and normal babies when they themselves had normal nutrition. Very important point here. And I take a lot of my opinion on this from Dr. Wallach because he's talked extensively about his career working with animals and how he's proved this in animals as well. He's taken, for example, Arctic fox. I believe it was at the Chicago Zoo or the St. Louis Zoo. I just I can't remember. Forgive me. Where they had these Arctic foxes that all had cleft lip, cleft palate. And, of course, he walks in and says, well, what are you feeding them? Oh, we're feeding them meat because they're meat eaters. He said, stop that. Feed them dog food instead because dog food has fortified nutrients in it, not just meat. We've already talked a lot about meat here. You feed animals meat or humans meat, it's also going to cause nutrient deficiencies because animals aren't supposed to just eat muscle meat and neither are we. We're supposed to have access to other sources of minerals. So he put these arctic foxes on dog food, and then he started inbreeding them just to prove the point. People think that birth defects are caused by inbreeding. It's not true at all. Inbreeding is standard practice in animals. Livestock, pet business, zoos, especially the pet industry, where we're trying to make, I say we, just humans, hobbyists, whether we're talking about reptiles or things like skunks. We love breeding specialty or novelty breeds. Look at dogs, right? In snakes, we want the albino ones. We like how they look. So we have to inbreed them to get these special traits that we want. Not just albino, but all kinds of special patterns that they've got all these special names for. Same with skunks. Don't believe me? They have designer skunks. How do you do it? Mostly by inbreeding. Same with dogs. You take two animals with the traits that you like. You breed them together, regardless of whether they're related. doesn't matter whether it's mother and son or brother and sister or whatever. So inbreeding is very, very normal in the animal businesses. I'm just telling you in case you didn't know. Doesn't produce birth defects unless you mess with their nutrition. And Dr. Wallach showed this with these foxes because that's what he started doing. Breeding mother to son, daughter to dad, brother to sister, while they were all on dog food. And showed that they now had pups that didn't have the cleft lip, cleft palate. It was not a genetic thing. It was a nutritional thing. So same with these pigs. Just because they were born blind and maimed doesn't mean they can't have perfectly healthy children. This is also true for more 
you know, significant human diseases that are still called genetic, things like cerebral palsy or Down syndrome, if the nutrition is correct, they can breed together and have perfectly healthy children. Just because they both have Down syndrome doesn't mean they're going to have a Down syndrome child if their nutrition is corrected. So he's saying, don't be discouraged. We can reverse this trend. We do have a lot of degeneration by generations here in humans. It's a bad situation right now, but we can have children that are born healthier than us. I was born with birth defects, and I'm confident that if I have children, I don't have any children now, but if I do, I'm confident that they will be way healthier than I am. Because my nutrition is proper, my wife's nutrition is proper, and I know a lot more now. I wouldn't allow birth defects to happen. And by the way, just another little comment on the animal industry. Since I was in the pet industry, I know that if you have animals that have a problem from birth, or they died at birth, maybe they didn't make it out of their egg, maybe they were born with a problem or a crooked spine, or born missing an eye or something like that, everyone in the industry knows it's your fault. You can't just put your hands up and say, well, I don't know what happened. Well, you should have read the little book that comes with every animal. It doesn't matter whether we're talking about geckos or iguanas or chinchillas. In every pet store, there's a little book about it, and it tells you to feed it the certain food. And usually these are created in pellets and powders that are also designed for that species. You buy the gecko powder. You buy the snake powder. You buy stuffed mice and rats that are not just mice and rats. They are stuffed with vitamins and minerals. They're frozen. They're dead already. And they're stuffed with vitamins and minerals. If you don't do that, it's very likely that you will have defective births or miscarriages. Or your animal dies while it's giving birth. And it's your fault. You can't just say, oh, I don't know. Everybody in the industry knows it's your fault. We just don't apply this to humans. And he talks a lot more about this. He's saying it's got nothing to do with races. There's no defective races. It's not about crossing races or anything like that. Next point I saved here a few pages later. Fish eggs. Just once again, fish eggs have been used as part of this program in all of these groups. He's talking about a bunch of different groups that maintain high stock, good stock, good babies that are born healthy. With fish eggs. The cattle tribes of Africa, the Swiss in the isolated high alpine valleys, and the tribes living in the higher altitudes of Asia, including northern India, have depended upon a very high quality of dairy products. The ones using the fish eggs are the Eskimos, the people of the South Sea Islands, the residents of the islands north of Australia, the Gaelics once again, the coastal Peruvians. They were using fish eggs. These other ones, the Africans, the Swiss... People in Asia and northern India, they were using high-quality dairy products for the same purpose. Among the primitive Maasai in certain districts of Africa, the girls were required to wait for marriage until the time of year when the cows were on the rapidly growing young grass. What do you know? They figured this out. The dairy products are healthier when the grass is growing rapidly in the spring and early summer. They used the milk from these cows for a certain number of months before they could be married. Preconception Nutrition figured out by primitives, not figured out by your doctor. If you ask us what is the optimal way to conceive a healthy child, we will tell you to be on all 90 essential nutrients, appropriate for your body weight, six months before conception. That's our opinion. These illiterate tribes in Africa figured that out, but your Harvard-educated doctor didn't. Not blaming your doctor or blaming the medical system and the education system that doesn't teach these things and doesn't bother to look them up. Again, this is Almost a hundred years old, this book. 
This is one of the most well-known and famous nutritional books of all time. If you are dealing with a practitioner who doesn't know nutrition and physical degeneration, if you ask them about Weston A. Price and they look at you with a blank stare, you need to fire that person. They are completely incompetent. They don't know anything about nutrition. Hold me to that. Go ask your doctor if they've heard of Western Price. Ask them if they've read nutrition and physical degeneration or studied it. Do they understand it? Can they repeat the premise to you? They ever heard of people using fish eggs for fertility? If they laugh at it, you should laugh at them and walk away. Here's another one that you or your doctor probably never heard of. It is common practice among many primitive tribes to wrap the newborn infant in an absorbent moss, which is changed daily. A newborn infant, however, does not begin having regular all-over baths for a few weeks after birth. While this method is orthodox among the primitives, it is greatly deplored as a grossly cruel and ignoble treatment by most moderns. So modern doctors say, oh, that's gross and maybe even abusive. You need to wash your baby right away. Okay. Dr. William Forrest Patrick of Portland, Oregon, was deeply concerned over the regularly occurring rash that develops on newborn infants shortly after they are first washed and groomed. He had a suspicion that nature had a way of taking care of this. In 1931, he left the original oily varnish on several babies for two weeks without the ordinary washing and greasing. He found them completely free from the skin irritation and infection which accompanies modern treatment. Did your baby have a rash when it was first washed? Maybe it wasn't supposed to be washed. This method was adopted by the Multnomah County Hospital of Oregon, which now reports that in 1916 cases of unwashed, unanointed babies, only two cases of pyrodermia occurred. They recorded that each day the clothing was changed and buttocks washed with warm water. Beyond this, the infants were not handled. Dr. Patrick states that within 12 hours after birth, by nature's method, the infant's skin is clear, and nature's protective film has entirely disappeared. In my observations of the infant's care among primitive races, I have been continually impressed with the great infrequency with which we ever hear a primitive child cry or express any discomfort from the treatment it receives. Of course, when hungry, they make their wants known. The primitive mother is usually very prompt, if possible, to feed her child. And let me comment here as well. I did spend some time over a period of four years in the Nicoya Peninsula, Costa Rica, and I've talked about it before. But one of the interesting things is comparing the babies in the jungle to babies that I know growing up in the suburbs and cities. Babies seem to be a heck of a handful to us modern people. I have friends and have heard many stories of people that are just up day and night with screaming, crying babies, colicky babies, to the point where it actually drives the parents into mental disorder basically they're they're so stressed these babies just won't stop crying you're looking at one two three four five year olds who you know they they can walk i guess but they don't want to mommy can you carry me you know in the the stroller you see six-year-olds in the stroller and i remember looking at these costa rican babies that are basically self-sufficient and almost everyone has a baby there there's tons of babies they breed like crazy Whenever we're doing community events and stuff, it's never disturbed by a baby. A baby never interrupts the meeting. You never hear a baby crying when the whole community comes around the football field or the soccer field. Everybody comes to watch the games in the evening. You never hear the babies cry. Again, they do let their wants be known when they're hungry, but they're not constantly screaming and crying. They're not staying up all night, keeping the parents up. And as soon as they can walk, they start to walk on their own and they're not 
bugging you to put them in the stroller. They don't have strollers or a pram for you guys in the UK and Australia. They don't have prams in the jungle. There's no pram. They'll carry the baby around for a little while, and by the time it's like two or three years old, it's hanging on to the back of a dirt bike with its two siblings. No problem, honestly. Crazy difference. Just commenting here. Our babies are weak. I'm not making fun of you. I was one of these weak babies. Constantly irritated babies. I don't blame the baby either. I know it's uncomfortable, especially when we're talking about gluten intolerance here. A colicky baby usually goes away just by getting rid of gluten for the mother, by the way, because it goes through the breast milk. Stop that and usually the colic stops quite quickly. It must be very uncomfortable for them. That's why they're making so much noise. Next point I saved here was about crabs. Recent studies on the vitamin content of crabs have shown that they are among the richest sources available. We have then, for modern mothers, the message from these primitives to use the seafoods liberally, both during the pregnancy period, in anticipation of pregnancy, and during that entire period. He's got a picture here of a woman of one of the Fiji islands who had gone several miles to the sea by herself to get this particular type of lobster crab, which she believed, and which her tribal custom had demonstrated, was particularly efficient for producing a highly perfect infant. He's commenting on these weak babies. Well, how many mothers and fathers do you know who would walk miles by themselves to go and get a special food for their family, for their baby, their growing baby, or their baby that's yet to be conceived? Right? These people will go massive distances to get the special foods that they know have the nutritional requirements for a growing baby, for a pregnant mother, and we're just not putting these efforts in. Again, I'm not making fun of anyone. I know my wife tells me at you know, 8 p.m., hey, honey, can you go and get uh, something from the store? And I'm grumbling about it, too. <laughs> we're busy in this modern world. I get it. I'm just saying that we have it backwards compared to what these primitives prioritize. We need to reprioritize. This reinforcement was accomplished by supplying special feedings of organs of animals. Among the Indians in the Moose Country near the Arctic Circle, hey, that's where I live, Moose Country, a larger percentage of the children were born in June than in any other month. This was accomplished, I was told, by both parents eating liberally of the thyroid glands of the male moose as they came down from the high mountain areas for the mating season at which time the large protuberances carrying the thyroids under the throat were greatly enlarged. Among the Eskimos, I found fish eggs were eaten by the childbearing women and the milt of the male salmon by the fathers for the purpose of reinforcing reproductive efficiency. Milt is sperm, by the way. Seminal fluid of fish. Milt. Hopefully this makes sense. They're eating eggs and sperms to enhance their fertility. Makes perfect sense to me. The coastal Indians of Peru ate the so-called angelote egg, an organ of the male fish of an ovoviporous species. That's a species where the eggs develop inside the fish rather than them laying the eggs. These organs were used by the fathers-to-be and the fish eggs were used by the mothers-to-be. In Africa, I found many tribes gathering certain plants from swamps and marshes and streams, particularly the water hyacinth. These plants were dried and burned for their ashes, which were put into the foods of the mothers and the growing children. Burned for the ashes. Next, I actually didn't save this point, but I want to read it to you. That Professor Drummond, a British biochemist, discussing the question of the modern decline in fertility before the Royal Society of Medicine, suggested that the decline in birth rate 
in European countries during the last 50 years was due largely to the change in national diets, which resulted from the removal of vitamins B and E from grains when the embryo or germ was removed in the milling process. Remember, none of these primitive populations had modern steel mills. They couldn't pulverize their flowers that much. They couldn't remove the vitamins that much. He called attention to the fact that the decline in the birth rate corresponded directly with the time when the change was made in the milling process so that refined flour was made available instead of the entire grain product. And skipping forward a few pages, the next point I saved, we've already talked about dental deformities and deformities in the dental arch. Well, this matters for the whole skeleton. The result of disturbance in the growth of the bones of the head and of the development of the general body design is quite regularly a narrowing of the entire body. And often there is a definite lengthening. So we get stretched out like a spaghetti string instead of having certain areas wider, like our jaws, our dental arch, our skull, and our pelvis. This matters. This is really important. Statistics have been published relative to the increase in the height of girls in colleges during the last few decades. First few decades of the 1900s here. This is probably a bad rather than a good sign, as actually it is an expression of this change in the shape of the body. I am informed by gynecologists that narrowing of the pelvic arch is one of the factors that is contributing to the increased difficulties that are encountered in childbirth by our modern generation. You've probably heard of a lot of women who were unable to give birth because they had such a narrow pelvis. That's a birth defect caused by inadequate nutrition. And he talks in more detail about several of the facial changes and other skeletal changes. But skipping forward to the next point. I have shown that the primitive races studied were dependent upon one of three sources for some of these fat-soluble factors. He's going into the importance of fatty nutrients even though they weren't all figured out in his time, namely seafoods, organs of animals, or dairy products. And this nutrition will not only prevent tooth decay, but check it when it is active. By the way here, let me explain this. Normally when we talk about teeth and mouth problems, gum recession, and other dental problems, we talk about two nutrient groups. One is the calcium group. Calcium and the other minerals involved in bone formation. Magnesium, phosphorus, boron, strontium, etc. But then we always talk about the fatty nutrients as well. And people might think, why? Why is that important for teeth formation? I thought teeth and bones are made of calcium and minerals. Well, they are. But we need the fatty nutrients as activators to absorb and utilize these minerals. In the calcium episode that I posted recently, it talked about how vitamin D is critical to absorbing calcium in the intestine. Well, we could do a whole nother podcast about vitamin K, which, again, we believe that's what Dr. Price was referring to here in this book when he says activator X. He didn't know what it was. We think it's vitamin K. It's another fatty nutrients. Vitamins D, E, A, and K are all fatty vitamins. Talking about organs here, they're rich in vitamin A, especially the liver and the eyes. Omegas, especially omega-3, rich in fish eggs and other seafood products and chicken eggs to an extent but mostly in sea eggs. You need all these to utilize your bone-building and teeth-building minerals. That's why we bring them up when it comes to dental problems. You can't just take calcium. It won't work. We don't sell just calcium, of course. Our bone formula has 
like 80 nutrients in it, including all the minerals. But it will not work very well if you don't have fatty nutrients too. And although we do supplement with the fatty nutrients, we also need to intake them in food. This is why we have a real hard time with vegans. I was vegan before I understand all the pressures and reasons that we have out there for trying that diet or sticking to it. But I promise it is difficult to help them heal something like a tooth problem or a bone problem because it's very difficult to get enough fatty nutrients from a vegan diet. Yeah, you could use primrose oil and avocado and a few other sources, but by and large, the richest sources of these nutrients are organs, real raw dairy, and seafoods. Not muscle meat, not chicken wings, not pasteurized dairy. He's talking about how even the stress periods of life don't overload these people because they have adequate nutrition as well. The next page I saved here, I didn't actually mark a point. I think it was because I was on the road. I didn't have a pen, I guess. So I think this is the point. For the entire period of human life on Earth, say one million years, we could debate about that, I don't know. But for the entire period of human life on Earth, some human skeletons have been preserved in burials. A study of these remains reveals that there has been more dental cavities in the last hundred years than at any time previously, and probably more than during any thousand-year period of his history. This situation suggests, if it does not demand, that we analyze critically the changes in man's environment and his interference with it. And he's talking about a recently published summary by the Research Commission of the American Dental Association, 237 investigators and observers present their best judgment and experience in 276 pages. In this detailed report, we see that there is no recognized theory regarding the etiology, or how a disease starts, that's what etiology means, what causes the disease. There's no recognized theory of the etiology of dental cavities and no accepted program for the control of the disease. So they didn't know back then and they don't know now. Your dentist might tell you it's sugar. Oh, it's caused by sugar. Okay. How do I reverse it, doc? Oh, I don't know. Again, not their fault. Dental schools do not teach them nutrition. So far as progress is concerned, there is much evidence that, in general, the situation is getting worse from decade to decade. Because they're not talking about nutrition. And although we do go into the importance of vitamin D, Dr. Price here is kind of against that notion. So let's hear him out. Remember that vitamin D chemically was not figured out back then. There's a few different ways to sort of make synthetic vitamin D. And there was even early experiments where people were getting poisoned by synthetic vitamin D. Well, in the calcium factor podcast that I just did, they actually talked about, well, that was the wrong form of vitamin D. So I'm pretty sure that's what's going on here. He's saying that he disagrees that vitamin D was the controlling factor. He made an extensive number of studies of the vitamin A and activator X content of a large series of butter samples obtained from many states and provinces and from different countries throughout the world. These studies were related to two other important studies, namely sunshine curves and mortality data from the various districts. These studies, which have now been in progress since 1928, include an analysis of more than 20,000 samples of dairy products. In order to establish wide application of the data, samples were received every two to four weeks from several different parts of the world over a period of several years. These included samples from districts of the U.S., Canada, Australia, Brazil, and New Zealand. It was quickly disclosed that neither total hours of sunshine nor temperature was the chief controlling factor. The factor most potent 
was found to be the pasture fodder of the dairy animals. Rapidly growing grass, green or rapidly dried, was most efficient. It was disclosed that these periods of growth were directly related to the rains and harvest, and for the southern states, there were two distinct peaks in the vitamin and activator curves, one in the spring and the other in the autumn. In general, in moving northward through the United States and through the Canadian provinces, these two peaks came closer together and the total for the maximum rise was much higher in the northern dairy districts than in the southern. By obtaining samples over a very wide range, curves for vitamin A and activator X were made for the products analyzed, and he concludes basically that this is the real factor for morbidity and mortality. The high vitamin content of the dairy during this time, more so than vitamin D. And I saved another page here that I didn't mark, and I'm actually just going to skip it. But the next thing that I did actually make a mark next to, a series of feeding experiments, this is in 1940, Summarized in the Dairy Council Digest in March 1940, a series of feed-in experiments on rats showed differences in the nutritive value of common fats. The rats which received butter fat grew better than the rats fed vegetable oils, no surprise there, were better in appearance and had better reproductive capacity. Apparently butter fat contains a substance not present in the other fats tested, which is essential for the growth and health of young animals. The difference is not due to vitamins A, D, or E, but to a difference in the chemical constitution of the fats. These findings are significant to the knowledge of nutrition because they indicate additional reasons why milk fat has superior value for human diets. I would agree. Next point I saved here was about fluorine or fluoride. You let me know if you want me to do a fluoride episode in the future. I have just the book for that. The Case Against Fluoride by Paul Canet, by the way, if you want to check that out. I do recommend it. Connett, C-O-N-N-E-T-T, The Case Against Fluoride, because it can be kind of complicated. Great book, though. And I am actually going to skip this whole thing about fluoride here, because it's going to take us off track. Fluoride is naturally occurring. There is a difference between that and what we put in tap water, and there is some contradictory evidence, and like I said, it's a little bit complicated to explain. I know we're going long here already, so I'm trying to wrap this up. There's a few points left. This point I found pretty interesting. He's showing a map of the U.S. from the Journal of Heredity. And on that map, it shows a big difference in certain states giving birth to American scholars. He's saying a much larger proportion of Rhodes scholars than normal are the oldest boy in the family and in general come from districts providing good nutrition. And the map's a little bit tight here, but let me just tell you that the states in black here, which have over 600 Rhodes Scholars per million, or scientists per million, come from these states in black. Montana, Wyoming, South Dakota, Iowa, Wisconsin, Utah, Colorado, Kansas. Those are all in the Midwest. Other black states, a couple of them show up here on the east, Massachusetts, Connecticut, Maryland. All of the states surrounding those states are in the middle. So from 330 to 585 scientists per million. That's basically the whole northern part of America. These mid-range states include Idaho, Washington, Oregon, Nevada, California, Nebraska, North Dakota, Minnesota, Missouri, 
Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, New York, Maine, Delaware, New Hampshire, Virginia, and South Carolina. All of the other states are under 300 scientists per million. This is the southern states. Look at a map of lifespan, you're going to see a similar map here, actually. They do live longest in the Midwest, with some glaring exceptions like Cook County, Chicago, basically. Not because of the modern murder rate, but because of modern cooking practices, basically. And Dr. Wallach would also point out that a lot of these states that are in black here, Montana, Wyoming, Utah, Colorado, Kansas, South Dakota, Iowa, Wisconsin, and the other states surrounding them that are in the mid-range, First of all, they're largely rural. Second, a lot of them have large northern European populations who tend to stew more. Stewing, baking, boiling, eating soups, along with traditional countryside types of activities like hunting and fishing and all this stuff. And he's saying that explains a large part of the reason why the southern states, Arizona, New Mexico, Texas, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Tennessee, Alabama, Georgia, Florida... North Carolina, Kentucky, West Virginia. That's basically the heart attack belt, right? The cancer belt. He blames it on frying, deep frying foods in the southern states. So that's two ways to look at it here. Number one is the original nutrient distribution is higher in those northern and midwestern states than it is in the south. And there's definitely the cultural factor of types of cooking. Now, back a hundred years ago here, I don't know what the deep frying habits were like. Just bringing it to your attention. Next point I saved here was a quote from Ernest Thompson Seton in The Gospel of the Red Man. The civilization of the white man is a failure. It is visibly crumbling all around us. It has failed at every crucial test. No one who measures things by results can question this fundamental statement. Yeah, our results are not doing very good here, guys. Not just the white man, but modern civilization is what I would call it. We are failing. Another quote I saved on this page was from Sir Arbuthnot Lane. Don't know if I said that right. Arbuthnot Lane. A world-renowned authority on the disturbances of the intestinal tract of the modern whites as compared with the more normal functioning of primitive races. And remember, a lot of the primitive races that were actually talked about in this book are, are white people. The Swiss and the Gaelics especially. They were doing fine. It's not white people, it's modern people. Sir Lane has expressed his deep impressions in his preface to the book, Maori Symbolism. Long surgical experience has proved to me conclusively that there is something radically and fundamentally wrong with the civilized mode of life. And I believe that unless the present dietetic and health customs of the white nations are reorganized, Social decay and race deterioration are inevitable. I could not agree more. I think we have proven our social decay and our racial decay. I don't mean to bring race into it. I really like to avoid the topic of race when possible. But being a white person myself here, I cannot say that I am proud of our heritage at this moment. And I don't mean historical. I mean, I see epidemics of laziness obesity, welfare dependence, outright stupidity. And anyone who is joining our way of life, our modern way of life, is falling into this dementia as well. 
don't believe me, look at TikTok for a few minutes. And next point I saved, he's actually just summarizing what we went over before. How these various people ate, and, and that gave them a high degree of immunity, not just to sicknesses, but also to degenerative diseases and tooth decay. Don't need to read that again. One of the last pages I saved here, our War Department records reveal that in both world wars, one and two, from 30 to 70% of the young men of the draft age were found to be unfit for field service. It is urgent that we learn why. Honestly, think about it. If we had a draft these days and there was some sort of physical or mental exam to determine their fitness requirements for war, I bet it would be 90% or more would be unfit for service. I'm not saying military service is a good thing, but I didn't remember this reading it the first time. From 30 to 70% of the young men of the draft age were found to be unfit for field service. He says it's urgent that we learn why. I think we know why. And on top of the nutritional stuff, yeah, my goodness, this epidemic of laziness, of just nonsense entertainment, nonsense desires and distractions, I bet most of our young men by far would be unfit for any type of service, not just military. And I feel myself becoming more and more biased on that opinion. Anyone who grew up with a phone, oh man. I feel for you, I feel for the families. I don't know what you're gonna do in the future. If you don't have a TikTok career, I don't know what you're gonna do. There are a few exceptions. I'm working with some quite young men now, 17, 18 years old, and they are showing motivation to do what we do, help people with health and stuff, help edit videos and so on. But I know they're at a huge disadvantage mostly mentally and emotionally, by the environment that they've come up in. I guess at one point in recent years, businesses gave up on telling people not to bring their phones to work, but I remember I worked at Walmart back when I was like 17, 18. You'd be fired immediately if you were on your phone in the shift. They totally gave up on that. I cannot believe how service has plummeted. Basically everywhere I go, I'm begging for good service rarely ever find it walk into a business and they're on their phone playing some stupid game oh could you hold on a second i'm just finishing this oh man unbelievable basically and it would be even worse in my business by the way because we work primarily on the phone and the computer so if you're stuck on these devices yeah i don't trust you to actually stay at work to stay working it takes immense discipline on my end to stick to work and this point that I saved here, right up at the end, not going to read the whole thing, but he's talking about how a 60 bushel crop per acre of wheat or corn will remove from the soil about 25 pounds of phosphorus, or 1 40th of the total content of the top 7 inches. So 1 40th, that means that without it being replenished, then in 40 years, if there was one crop per season you'd remove all of the phosphorus and nothing would grow on it. Remember, modern fertilizers are nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. Plants are dependent on that for growth. But they need more than that to thrive. 
This is why our crop plants that are growing only with nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium fertilizer are fundamentally weak. They're extremely weak. That's why we need pesticides and herbicides and fungicides. already mentioned the problem with using those is that they kill the fungus and bacteria in the soil. And then you've got a lot of the alternative health world who believes the primary problem with pesticides is that the residues stay in the plant, so when we eat them, it actually attacks our own microbiome in our bodies. And of course, there are more bacterial and fungus and microorganism cells in our body than there are human cells. It's a commonly known thing these days that there are more foreign cells in your body than cells that comprise what we think of as you. I would say those bacterial cells are just as much you as your bone cells or whatever. Especially because we know that you can throw off the digestion and deplete the probiotics and watch a mental change. Watch a behavioral change. You could have ADD or hyper irritability or hyper aggression if you throw off your microbiome. And of course that now throws off your digestion and absorption of other nutrients and now more serious diseases are to follow. But I definitely know and can concur that serious mentally disturbed cases like schizophrenics always, always have a digestion problem as well. That has something to do with their microbiome, these foreign cells of bacteria and so on. So the alternative world, I think they are onto something when they're saying there's a big problem with us consuming so much pesticides. Non-organic food is what it means. GMO. I don't care if the organism has been genetically modified, in quotes. All domesticated plants and animals have been genetically modified by our breeding practices. It's not the genetics that concerns me. It's the fact that these GMO plants are dependent on pesticides and herbicides and fungicides. So when you buy GMO plants or you feed our cows and chickens, you feed them GMO crops, it's poisoning their microbiome. Now they're weak. Now they need antibiotics and all this other stuff. And it can kill our probiotics. And that's massively important for our health. I say it all the time. These days we start almost everyone on a digestion protocol because I know how big of a problem this is. And if you don't correct the microbiome, you're not going to absorb nutrients properly. But we sell nutrients. We sell supplements. We want you to get a result from them. We know you will get a much, much, much better result if we work on the microbiome first. A little bit of a detour here from the main point here, but I thought it was interesting that there is an exact number here, about 25 pounds of phosphorus per acre taken away with a 60 bushel crop. And he's talking about the extreme difficulty of getting that back into the soil. And we've only partially solved that with modern fertilizers. Definitely haven't completely solved it. And the very last point that I saved here, talking about the quality of the food that we're actually able to grow on these depleted soils. And the point is here, modern white flour has had approximately four-fifths of the phosphorus and nearly all of the vitamins removed by processing in order to produce a flour that can be shipped without becoming infested with insect life. I have been advised by millers that they could not ship flour if the minerals and vitamins were not removed. Why? Because if you don't strip and denature the flour, bugs will get it, mold will get it, fungus will get it. Because living organisms want healthy food. This is very important. We have to make the food undesirable to insects and mold and fungus. They won't eat it because there's nothing in it. 
we need to do that in order to ship it. Of course, we've come up with some other ways around this in modern shipping and modern processing, but the same problem remains. We've had to take the value out of the food in order to have it with a long shelf life. So the longer the shelf life, in my opinion, the worse the food is, the less value it has. He was advised by Millers that they could not ship flour if the minerals and vitamins were not removed. And he's saying we have an important measure here of the value of a food, namely the quality of insect life that it can support. The more valuable the product for human food, the more insect life it will support. Highly refined flour will support almost no insect life, but a good product will support a relatively large amount of insect life in proportion to the volume of flour. And he did a little experiment here. He took some rye bread, whole rye bread, grown up near the glaciers of Switzerland. And he shows all the bodies left over from the bugs that lived and died on that plate. He also left out a plate of highly refined white flour bread. And the insects basically ignored it. And that was all of the points that I saved from this book. I know this was a long episode. Congratulations for making it all the way through. You now know more about nutrition than the vast majority of medical doctors living today. Very, very likely you know more than your dentist and your gynecologist and any other medical specialist you can name. Unfortunately, many people in the nutrition world don't even know this stuff. Although I represent a naturopathic doctor and I work with other naturopathic doctors, I cannot even vouch for the naturopathic profession anymore. In the modern naturopathic colleges, they are taught, quote, complementary medicine, meaning nutrients and drugs. It's hardly alternative. It's not alternative to me. Even more unfortunate, modern veterinarians are also being trained in this way. Veterinarians are supposed to know how to prevent and reverse things like diabetes, arthritis, cancer, all the same human diseases that we get, animals can get. Veterinarians are supposed to know how to stop that. But unfortunately now, you take your dog in with a blood sugar problem, they might put them on metformin. They might give them cortisone shots. Basically the same treatment that they would give you for your arthritis or cancer or whatever they will give to your dog and cat. They're also selling health insurance for animals. Again, this is tragic. If we did this for farm animals, you would not be able to afford animal products, period. So agriculturalists and farmers are still taught this stuff, but veterinarians, naturopathic doctors, most chiropractors and osteopaths, again, unfortunately, are not taught this stuff and not specifically taught this extremely important work by Weston A. Price, Nutrition and Physical Degeneration. So you have basically completed an introductory course here. I recommend reading this book yourself and studying it and implementing it. Even though the details weren't figured out in Price's time, if you learned nothing else about nutrition and just took that wisdom, you can change your own health. Although, of course, we would go further. We know a lot more now, and there are new problems now. You can't just rely on high vitamin butter. I don't even know where you're going to get it. The situation is much, much worse than it was in Price's time. All of the growing fields that we use are in worse condition. It's not possible under our current way of doing things to make them any better. We don't put more minerals back in the soil. Again, I will do an episode in the future, in the near future. We have it planned. My friend Luke and I to talk more about this. He's got a lot more experience in building things 
than I do. So I want to talk about how we could actually reorient our food systems, water systems, make a healthier world in our cities and towns. And it's going to be a long discussion. There's a lot to say. So stay tuned for that. Once again, if you listen to these episodes on my website archive, there is a special treat at the end. So those who are listening on the website, stay tuned after I sign out here. And one of the reasons I want you to go to the website is because you can download it there for free. I've been very successful on Instagram taking lectures, cutting them up into one minute, and posting them. I'm able to earn my living on that foundation because as soon as we started putting that information out there into Instagram land and no one had ever heard Dr. Wallach before, thousands of people resonated with it, we grew quickly, and of course they come into the messages and they want our advice on their health. And of course we sell them supplements and give them the food advice. And once again, of course, you can reach out to us on Instagram or on email if you'd like a health protocol from me or my team. We do this full time. But I'm saying I want you to go to my website archive and download these episodes, especially this one. I think by far this is one of the best episodes we've ever done here. I know it's long, but this is really, really great information. If you download them, you can make posts out of them. You can do what I did. You have permanent permission to take anything I've ever made, video or audio, and repost it anywhere else. I will never file a copyright claim as long as I live. And hopefully when I'm gone, long time in the future, whoever's managing my archives and all this, they will be instructed never to interfere with anybody else who wants to repost this information. I know these are audios, but you could very easily make a lot of these points into little TikTok videos or Instagram reels or whatever platforms exist in the future if you're listening to this years down the road. This information is timeless. It will never stop being important. And as mentioned at the beginning, this will never be replicated. All of the populations mentioned have now meshed with modern cultures too much very very difficult to find anyone anywhere in the world living in their primitive way and our mission here in this business is to actually change the world but i know in my lifetime it's still very likely that modern medicine will be dominant i know we're recruiting lots and lots of people into the natural way of life and there are many many people who come to us with all sorts of other natural ideas there are a lot of people coming to the natural side of the table but do I think that in my lifetime we're going to fully change things? No, I really don't. If anything, it looks like... Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Society is really splitting down the middle between those who don't want to be a part of the modern food system in the modern, like, smart cities, new world order thing, and people who just don't know any of this and they're stuck in that system, which is not good. We want to disseminate this amongst everybody. We don't want there to be two separate societies. Nonetheless, it's up to all of us to spread this information, and you have my permission to use these in any way that you see fit to spread this message. That's one reason I want you to go to the website. Another reason, of course, you might buy a book, you might get into our other social media and you might become a customer of the supplements and whatever but more important is for you to spread this message and i also want you to live without the bombardment of advertisements that we're all exposed to do you think i listen to podcasts not really if i do i download them i upload them to my 15 16 year old ipod I had this thing for half my life I put my lectures on there so I can listen to it because I don't want to use these modern apps. I've already gone off on here about Spotify and how I don't think they deserve your money. And I know a lot of you paid their extortion fee so that you don't hear the advertisements. Well, these companies suck and these companies are controlling information and they are heavily invested in pharmaceutical medicine. All of them. Spotify, Apple... Google Podcasts, you name it. I know you guys are using a lot of different platforms to listen to this. I can see the insights here. I can see the statistics. None of these apps deserve your money. Even the one that I'm currently publishing on, Acast. I have no reason to trust that app. So download these and listen to these without ads. And you are not giving these apps your data. Remember, if you don't pay for the product, you are the product. Most of these companies are making most of their money from selling your data to advertisers. Stop giving them your data. Stop giving them your money. You can listen to these for free. It takes a little bit of extra effort. I often download videos that I want to watch. I take them right off of YouTube so I don't have to watch the ads while I'm watching it. I put it on a USB stick and I plug that into my TV. You could use an HDMI cable from your laptop or computer. Plug it into your TV and you can watch stuff that you've downloaded and you have it forever in case it disappears this podcast has already been taken down and i'm already warning you it may get taken down in the future in fact there's a very good chance that it will download them and you have them forever you can take them and chop them up and add visuals and post them on platforms and maybe you can earn a living like i do on social media i know it's not the best way to spend your time but hey it's effective share these podcasts as well your people need to know this just as much as you do and while we're on the subject of waking people up, let me tell you about my most recent project. I just finished Wag the Dog Theory Part 4. This is a series, Wag the Dog Theory. I've been doing this for a few years now. The first one, Part 1, was about the fake pandemic, the fake footage that the whole thing was based on. It was based on them telling us on the media that Chinese people are dropping dead in the streets. So I took all this footage of Chinese people literally like taking a step and falling down the stairs dead. Although they weren't dead, it's fake footage. That's how they sold the pandemic to us. Most people forgot that. 
Everything else was built on top of that initial lie. So I made this Wag the Dog Theory video. Of course it got banned from YouTube. It also got banned from BitChute. Bit surprised about that. And I was pretty upset at the time. I had had multiple videos taken down at that time. Mostly complaining about masks and lockdowns and all this stuff. And then of course YouTube and the other social media platforms. They want us locked down I guess. If we're going to put it that way. They want us to wear masks. They want us to be muzzled. They want us to take drugs. Of course, it's the drugs that they're invested in. Once again, they're invested in the status quo. So I made this Wag the Dog Theory video, not just about the pandemic, but about other fake footage, like fake shootings, fake wars, the history of false flags. And since it wasn't being allowed on social media, I made my own website, wagthedogtheory.com. And when that first video got taken down, I actually doubled it, doubled the length, and put a bunch of stuff in it that I knew for sure would not be allowed on YouTube. I actually thought the original version, the first cut, I thought it might slide through the censorship. But it didn't, so I put all the stuff I really wanted to put in it. Put that up on wagthedogtheory.com, and I also put it on Rumble. Rumble does allow those videos for now. You can watch them on Rumble right now. Am I suggesting that you should support Rumble? No, I don't think it's any better than any of these other platforms. I have no reason to trust Rumble. But it's there. You can watch it on your television. But the same thing I just said with the podcast, you can go to wagthedogtheory.com and download all of the episodes for free. There's four episodes now. I've been doing it once a year now. People send me all kinds of stuff. We've got a bunch of different channels on Instagram. Every day people are sending me some of the most far out, deep end conspiracy stuff. I don't watch all of it, but I save a lot of it. And once a year I go through it all and I make a big compilation. There's very little filler in it. Lots of people in the conspiracy world have told me there's stuff in those videos that they've never seen before, stuff that they've never known before, stuff they've never thought about before. I'm proud of those videos. I'm not really taking credit for it. I just put them all together. I add a little bit of my own voice when it's necessary. But I love the format. I was woken up in part by videos, long videos, well-produced videos. That's what I'm trying to provide to you here, not just about health about pretty much everything they show us in the media. We need to understand that basically everything they show us in the media is fake. We need to disconnect from it. We need to stop giving it our attention. And hopefully when the next pandemic comes around, we will be ready to not believe it, not participate in it. That's true for the next war and the next school shooting and whatever else they fake. Between the four installments now, it's about 13 hours of hardcore content with very little filler. That website, wagthedogtheory.com, is also not guaranteed to be up forever. I have no idea if they can pull my websites down. I assume they can. Nothing is safe on the internet. Download them and share them with your people. I've seen people wake up from these videos. I've watched it in real time right in front of my eyes. People were saying, oh, there's no way they could fake that. Okay, watch this. A few minutes later, they have changed their mind. There's no money involved. There's no merchandise. But once again, you have permission to reuse anything I've ever made. Post it elsewhere, chop it up, burn it on DVDs, lend it out. I don't even care if you make merch about it. I think that's a good idea. I can only give out so many stickers and business cards. I pin up those business cards when I stop at gas stations and stuff. Wagthedogtheory.com. Make t-shirts with it. People will ask, hey, what's that? You can tell them. Tell them to go to the website. And Wag the Dog, the movie, the actual film. It's a 1997 movie, if you didn't know. Starring Dustin Hoffman and Robert De Niro. It's a very, very important movie. This provides the blueprint of how they fake news and how they fake events. 
I don't recommend very many movies, but I consider it mandatory watching for those in the truth community. We must understand the blueprint. That's where Wag the Dog theory comes from. They use similar trickery and misdirection about health too, I promise. They don't want you to have health information. And let me end this on, on a light note here. I know I just got a bit dark there for a second. Thinking about these uh, tech companies and, and why they're you know so against health information and stuff. I think Joey B summed it up. I, I watched a video of him recently. I'm going to play it for you in a second. I think he gives the perfect explanation actually of why these tech people are doing this to us. Not necessarily because there are evil overlords, although that might be a thing, you know, the elite club or whatever, but these tech nerds believe everything they see in textbooks. I believe most of them are not in on an evil conspiracy. They're not even allowed in the club, I believe. But they do believe every single thing they saw in a McGraw-Hill textbook, from space to evolution to all the drug stuff. Yeah, of course vaccines are safe and effective because I read that in a textbook. These nerds believe everything that science says. I'm not saying the process of science is bad. I'm saying that science has definitely been manipulated big time to sell us a fake world and sell us a bunch of fake concepts that take away our power and take away our ability to play this game on this world properly. Because if we don't know the rules, we can't play the game properly. Let me play this clip from Joey B. Tunes on YouTube. You know, honestly, dude, I used to think that this was purely an organized effort to suppress the truth. And I still believe there's a strong element of that. But after seeing some of these people who work at these social media companies, I really think that this is the revenge of the nerds. The men who work at these places have the collective testosterone levels of a small dehydrated <laughs> bird, the Zuckerbergs, the Dorseys, the Sundars. These are men who can't change a tire on a car. These are the kids who missed the kickball at recess. They drooled in school. They they froze like a fainting goat if a girl even looked at them. I mean, now they found a way through computers to create a fake world they can live in where no one can stuff them into a locker. They create the rules now. Oh, you violated the terms of service. Now you go in the locker. It's payback. I mean, it's the first era in human history where weak men finally achieved the power in society that their genetic makeup wouldn't wouldn't allow in eras like the Middle Ages, ancient Rome. I mean, could you imagine a guy like Mark Zuckerberg sitting amongst a table of Vikings during medieval times and telling a guy wearing a fur cloak with horns on his hat that he's banned from the table for spreading misinformation? What if they what if they found out he was collecting data from all of them? Like he knew all the passwords into the skull room or some shit. They'd carry him out above their heads and throw him off the drawbridge right into the alligator mode. That I would agree. be the end of them. Meanwhile, fast forward to 2023, some Silicon Valley dweeb at Instagram with his little Funko pop toy collection on his desk going, hmm, Sam Tripoli, he shouldn't be saying that stuff. This is very problematic content. And with a click of a button, you're put in a locker with tape over your mouth. It's ridiculous. Couldn't have said it better myself. And yeah, let's stop letting these nerds run our lives. And nothing against nerds. I'm a nerd in my own way, but... Not when it comes with the ego to control other people or get revenge on those of us who don't believe everything they believe. Don't buy into their products and their smart world. I don't want a smart world. Hopefully you don't either. 
this nutrition and physical degeneration conversation had nothing to do with electricity and EMF. That's a conversation for another day. I've made other content on that. Some of that is here on the podcast. But I'm trying to pull away from these social media companies as much as possible, and that's my advice to you as well. For better health and better peace of mind, sanity, get off of these things. Don't give me your information. When you have the opportunity to download things, do it. Do more offline. If you don't have any hobbies offline, get one or two. If you don't have any skills offline, get some. Start procuring them. Understand you won't be very good at first. Work through that process. This is what real fulfillment is like. There is no real fulfillment online, in my opinion. Don't mean to have too much of a rant here, but when we're talking about creating a healthier world, to me that definitely means unplugging much, much more. Electricity is an anti-nutrient, and we are going to talk more about that in the future, so stay tuned. Once again, I do appreciate all of you being here with me. Those of you here on the archive, stay tuned to the end. For everyone else, I wish you health and wealth. God bless, and we'll see you next time.